Assembly Plenary. Considerable length of time that uh, uh, three committees have come together for the one meeting, and just for a few minutes in terms of uh, background for that, uh, and I suppose as to some explanation as to why I'm chairing it and, and others aren't, because we're taking evidence today uh, from executive office officials, uh, they were required to be invited to our committee, and then. The Economy Committee contacted us and asked us if they could join into that, and then further to that, the Finance Committee as well. And as a result of that, what we will do today, in terms of asking questions to the witnesses in both sets, uh, the officials in your various departments, our various committees, if you just as normal as you would indicate to them to speak at a committee, if you can let them know as normal, and then what we can do is. Uh, I will seek somebody from the Executive Office Committee to speak first and ask questions. Then I'll pass to Kiva because the Economy Committee connected with us first, and Kiva can select somebody and then uh, pass to Steve for somebody from the Finance Committee. And generally, where we can, the idea has been to seat Finance Committee members opposite where Steve is and Economy members opposite where Kiva is, so that uh, if eye contact is required uh, with your chair, you can do that in terms of asking questions. And if people that are on Starleaf uh, can indicate as they normally would do, I know certainly for Executive Office Committee members that would be through using the raise hand function. And uh, for others, I think there's a WhatsApp group for one of the other committees. So if you just use what, what is there and what is available. Um, before we move into the, um, the, the presentation for our, uh, and question and answer session from the head of the civil service, just by way of background, as I say, the, the three committees have come together because of the joint interest that there is on the issues of COVID recovery, and then afterwards for High Street uh, Task Force, the issues cut across all three uh, departments and of our, are of interest, and rather than having officials uh, attending all three committees, it, it made a certain amount of sense to bring them today. But I suppose um, we do need to just mention, first of all, that there is a slightly different situation prevailing today, because certainly from the perspective of the head of the civil service, there was to be a presentation uh, and then questions and answers regarding the COVID recovery uh, plan. But unfortunately, that COVID recovery plan was to have been presented to the executive yesterday and approved, and then we would have been able to scrutinise and interrogate that, as is our right as committee members. But unfortunately, uh, due to the absence of a first and deputy first minister, that executive office committee or that executive committee meeting could not take place yesterday, uh, which means that the COVID recovery plan has not been officially approved. So I would ask members um, to bear that just in mind whenever they are actually uh, asking questions of the head of the civil service, because it's a plan that now hasn't been approved, the level of detail that she will be able to go into will be limited uh, because of that. And, and that is unfortunate because COVID recovery is present today. We need to address it probably yesterday. Uh, and the fact that we don't have a plan and at this stage have no indication as to when that plan will be uh, renewed does create a lot of difficulty. And also, uh, from some of our committee's perspective, tomorrow there was to be an executive office or an executive committee meeting that would have addressed 
a number of restrictions and the easing of them. So, for example, uh, close contact services back to non-appointment stage, live music for the live music industry would have been permitted again. Uh, overnight stays would have been approved for youth services for residential starting on the 1st of July. They now can't be approved tomorrow. Uh, like the, the COVID recovery plan, which means that we are not going to be able to have those things for people. And I think people will be upset. So I hope that we can all work together today. I think it's important that we send out a message to the public that we all can come together, that we can work, we can deliver for people, uh, and that in the face of COVID and other problems that there are out there, that we can actually try and do our best uh, to reassure people and to get some resolution to the issues that they face. So I'm going to ask the uh, to we have Jenny Piper, who is the interim head of the civil service, and she has been joined today by two of her colleagues. One is uh, Karen Pearson, who is the director of COVID strategy and recovery, and then also Mr. Paul Grockett, who is the, from the department for the economy. And uh, we will bring them up into the spotlight, and our other members will move down into the audience. And we'll pass over to yourself, Jenny. I did, when I was chatting to you yesterday, say that I would see you eight times today in the chamber. It'll only be six, because I can only see six screens. But um, I'll pass over to yourself uh, to do your presentation, and then we can move to questions. Well, thank you very much, Chair. Um, as I said to you yesterday, I, I would have welcomed over the past eight months uh, having uh, been the ability to clone myself um, six or eight times uh, to, to, to deal with the scale of, of the challenges. But uh, I'm very grateful for the opportunity today to brief not only uh, the TEO committee, but also uh, the DFE and DOF committees uh, on the work of, of the COVID task force. Um, and uh, as you have mentioned, my colleagues, Karen Pearson and Paul Grocott from DFE are here in support. Paul, obviously, with uh, the detailed expertise uh, on the economic recovery. And uh, Karen uh, has been the lead official within TEO for longer than me on, on all aspects of, of COVID and the pandemic. Uh, so I hope members will understand that uh, there's a fair amount of the detail. I will probably defer to them during the Q&A. Um, but just as, as an introduction, um, I, I do want to say a little bit uh, about the work we've done. And, and Chair, you've already indicated that um, I'd hoped at one stage that we would be able to give you a full presentation on the COVID recovery plan, um, and we're not quite there yet, uh, but I hope I'll be able to give you a flavour uh, of the work that we've done because um, no one uh, doubts the scale of the challenges that the pandemic has presented and the fact that we are still operating in an ever-evolving situation. Um, we've had great progress with our vaccination programme, but we know some of the new variants that have emerged do uh, continue to pose a significant threat. And we need, in planning for the recovery, to be able to flex and change as some of those external factors may change around us as well. Um, but I think the, the uh, emergency response to the pandemic has taught us a lot uh, in, uh, in the civil service and beyond with all of our stakeholders. It's taught us a lot about collaborative working, uh, about agility uh, and about how we can uh, demonstrate success when we get it right. And, and a lot of those lessons from COVID are going to be really important as we move through uh, recovery. 
um, ministers will and elected representatives will know that um, on the 2nd of December, the same day that I was appointed as interim head of the civil service, first and deputy first minister announced the creation of the executive COVID task force. And three months later, on the 2nd of March, we, we published our, uh, our, our document, the, the pathway out of restrictions. And essentially that pathway set out three steps. The first was all about lifting the restrictions, about relaxing many of those restrictions that we've all now uh, come to, to live with. And the idea was that lifting the restrictions was really the first step in building the foundations for any recovery. The second step was around short to medium term interventions that would help jumpstart longer term renewal. And the third big step in our pathway was moving to longer term aspirations through the programme for government and its focus on outcomes. And we have moved progressively um, through phase one, the lifting of restrictions uh, in line with the public health uh, advice. And there are further tranches of restrictions, which we hope the executive will be able to agree and lift over coming weeks if the public health advice supports it. The second stage was about those short to medium term interventions to jumpstart recovery. And that's really, I suppose, where we're now focusing in terms of our recovery strategy. And I very much hope that it will go uh, to the executive tomorrow. We do have we do have a, a plan. Uh, I can't I can't give you the presentation on it as yet because I, I hope we'll be giving that to uh, the executive tomorrow, but I can take you through the key aspects of that and give you a flavour of the work that we've done and how that's emerging. I think throughout the pandemic, the executive has been consistent in its approach uh, in terms of the three guiding criteria uh, as we've worked through the pathway. First uh, is, is to really take account of the evidence, the most up-to-date uh, scientific evidence. The second big issue has been around the ability of our health service to cope with the pandemic. And the third area has been about those wider and longer term impacts on health, on our society and on our economy. And the draft recovery plan that we're now looking at um, is really designed to focus again on those big areas and to implement action over the coming months through for I suppose a two-year period to really focus attention on short-term immediate priorities as well as those longer-term interventions that need some planning and some initiation just right now. And um, it's worth saying that the the current one-year funding window does not allow us for the certainty that um, all of us, I think, we like in terms of planning for the future, and you will be aware of, of the extent to which the finance minister has been pressing uh, to try and secure uh, multi-year budget agreements. So, the 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 plan, I suppose, really focuses over on four big areas for the next twenty-four months. First of those is around economic growth, then tackling inequalities, the health of the population and then on a cross-cutting basis, wider green growth and sustainability. And in focusing on those four areas, we are very cognizant 
of the emerging long-term strategic programme for government. Um, so we are working, I suppose, to try and build a recovery plan that will dovetail over the coming months into that programme for government with its outcome focus that we have already started consultation on. Recovery is not about getting us back to where we were pre-pandemic. Rather, it's about providing a foundation for wider economic health and societal renewal by prioritising um, actions, by prioritising areas of intervention, but also about doing things differently and learning the lessons uh, around collaboration, around agile working and around working with stakeholders, all things that help see us through uh, the, the past 15, 18 months or so. And the plan really focuses, I suppose, on three what we're calling accelerators, things that will accelerate the recovery. And the first of those, not surprisingly, is economic growth, um, because the economy is such a central aspect of citizen well-being in terms of providing job opportunities, financial stability, and it can also make positive contributions to other areas, including mental health. And we need to really shift away from um, those emergency income packages that have been put in place to facilitating the return to work for displaced and for furloughed workers. It's really also an opportunity to refocus on the critical skill needs and the unique uh, opportunities in the economy, uh, particularly around green growth and the sustainable ambitions of our population. And some of the indicators are you know, are, are encouraging. We know the economy um, has has taken a hit. Um, our chief uh, our chief economist in Northern Ireland does uh, tell us that GVA growth in Northern Ireland has contracted by around eleven percent uh, in the past year or so, with forecasts saying that we can't expect any return to the pre-pandemic levels until around twenty twenty three, and hence. The Department for the Economy's Economic Recovery Action Plan is absolutely critical with its £287 million uh, commitment for 21-22. But having said that economic activity has been dampened, the Chief Economist also reports encouraging signs. Um, and I think the announcement which members will be aware of today from PwC is, is, is a further encouraging sign. We do see increased mobility and high street footfall um, showing an improvement, and we see job vacancy numbers and furlough numbers more promising than a few months ago. But clearly there is a very long way to go. And so in looking at economic growth and that aspect of recovery acceleration, we're focusing on job creation and growth, enhancing skills and stimulating the economy through green growth. The second accelerator is around tackling inequalities. And while we've made great strides here socially and culturally over recent years, many of the systemic challenges and inequalities have deepened as a result of the pandemic. And those from disadvantaged backgrounds, many of them have been hardest hit. And women in particular, um, the, the evidence tells us they have been disproportionately impacted in terms of uh, job sustainability. 
it's clear also that uh, recent disruptions have worsened some of our uh, problem community relations areas and put a strain on our justice system and on preventative crime measures. And therefore, interventions looking at tackling inequalities seek to address all of those thorny issues and, and other areas that seek to um, widen and uh, leave some aspects of our society behind. And there are three priorities when we look at tackling inequalities. First, about uh, addressing vulnerabilities, then looking at learning recovery, uh, enhancement and skills development, and then looking at equitable access to our health services. And that then takes me to um, the third big accelerator, and that is around the health of the population. Uh, and of course, COVID-19 has uh, affected our health in many fundamental ways over the course of the pandemic and on an ongoing basis. Um, sadly, there are still people dying from the virus and there are longer term impacts on our population uh, in terms of people waiting for treatment and the as yet unquantified impact on mental health. So COVID does remain the central priority for our healthcare system through the vaccination programme, but focus is now shifting to reform services to overcome the long waiting lists and the backlogs there, um, and also to uh, rebuild a resilient health and social care system. And it will um, not surprise any members um, when I say that the healthcare system is going to need very significant and ongoing support for some time to come to deal not only with COVID, but also in terms of significant investment as a priority for recovery in Northern Ireland. Many of the challenges faced by the healthcare system pre-pandemic in terms of the aging population, the increased demand for services, the long waiting lists, the workforce pressures, and the emergence of new and more expensive treatments coupled with budget constraints, those, those haven't gone away and they continue to be persistent and indeed many have been exacerbated uh, by the pandemic. Uh, more than half of patients in Northern Ireland, as we know, are, are waiting more than 52 weeks for treatment. And the health system in Northern Ireland is facing significant financial challenge um, as a result of non-recurrent investment over the last number of years. Uh, accumulating with the provision of less than 1% additional recurrent funding in 2021-22. We estimate that an additional 400 million will be needed in 2022-23, just to avoid cutting existing services. And that's before any future service delivery to take account of population growth or recovery strategies is considered. So the health accelerator is really critical in the whole recovery plan. And it will look again at vulnerability, at protecting and improving the health of the population and at promoting health and well-being. And I've, as I've mentioned, funding is going to be a critical, uh, a critical issue for us. And consideration will need to be given to retaining an element of support for some of those sectors that have been adversely affected by the pandemic. And so um, we, we will be looking at, at no cliff edge um, for the withdrawal of any funding there, thinking, for example, about some of the job retention schemes and the universal credit uh, increase. And we're not unique in that. Um, other devolved administrations are, are, are in the same position as us. But as I've mentioned, the current 
one-year funding arrangements um, are not sustainable, and so we face critical engagement now on the UK spending review. That's going to be key to the successful delivery of our recovery plan. But recovery is a chance to emerge stronger from the pandemic and get focus and prioritisation around the key areas that really matter to citizens here to transform the economy, create jobs and, and reshape lives. So, in summary, um, Chair, work has been ongoing um, for months now to develop this integrated cross-cutting recovery plan, which has involved all of the all of the departments here, intense collaboration and focus. Everybody's been very galvanized by the need to really prioritize and focus on a significant number of interventions and um, to accelerate the recovery over the next 24 months, focused on ensuring citizens are, are in a better place in the short term, as well as putting in place the building blocks for the longer term. The executive's budget for 2021 to 22 allocated 1.148 million for COVID support and recovery. A further 316 million was agreed on the 20th of May. Um, the funding for 22-23 and beyond won't be known until the outcome of the spending review later this year. But the recovery plan has been consciously designed to look at interventions over a two-year period, not just confined by the short-term funding limitations. And that's to help try and focus attention on both those immediate priorities and the longer-term interventions. The plan's at an advanced stage, and hopefully we'll be able to bring it to uh, executive ministers uh, eminently for consideration. Uh, Chair, I hope that gives um, uh, the committee members uh, uh, an overview of the priorities within the recovery plan, and um, we're happy to try and, and deal with your questions now. Okay, Jenny, thank you very much indeed for that, and I appreciate the constraints that you're under in terms of updating us and providing us with information. Uh, and moving into the, the questioning element, um, normally chairs and deputy chairs get a bit of latitude, but I'm going to maybe suggest that we forgo that today because we've only got about 30 to 40 minutes for questions. So I think if each member just asks one question uh, and gets a reply, and if they need to follow up anything, they can maybe come back to you uh, by email so that we can try and work around as many members as possible getting their questions. If I could ask you maybe just, you touched a little bit about it there at the end regarding the financing of this, because the plan is uh, quite broad. Um, it will touch many, many departments and many elements of their work, but yet the funding that would be required to deliver the full programme, I would suggest, is evidently not there. So there's going to have to be decisions taken in terms of work that would have been delivered had there not been the COVID recovery plan and projects diverted into delivering COVID recovery instead. How is that decision process going to be taken? And then what will we do about those projects that departments would have been delivering, which they won't be able to deliver because their resources will be diverted to the COVID recovery uh, programme? Well, all of the departments have been very mindful of budget constraints as they have worked uh, with the task force to develop the recovery strategy. So they've been mindful of what budget they have and um, you know, committee members will be aware that uh, there, while there's been additional money uh, to help uh, sectors um, and, and the society through the pandemic, um, 
there is a lot of uncertainty about the funding that will be available, and it was not a generous budget settlement in terms of the the um, you know I suppose maybe the the business as usual work chair which you're you're maybe referring to, but I think one of one of the purposes of the recovery strategy has been to try and encourage uh, departments to prioritise that maybe there are things that they will will not be able to take forward because we're in this recovery phase, and of course. The executive has significant ambitions um, in terms of the programme for government and in terms of NDNA. So it has been uh, you know, a very iterative process to try and agree with departments what the priorities should be. And I can't give you the granularity that maybe I, I might have uh, hoped I could show you, but the purpose in going to the executive um, is, is really to get executive agreement that these are the priori priority areas, these are the priority interventions, and it will simply not be possible to do absolutely everything that ministers and departments might have been doing before or might want to do now. The recovery plan is, is aimed at focusing ministers and focusing departments on those things that are going to make an impact in the areas that I have described. Um, and work continues to try and get a multi-year budget, which would give us a greater level of confidence about what we could deliver. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's, it's not rocket science to say it will not be possible to do everything that departments and ministers might have wanted to do pre-pandemic. Hopefully the intention is through the recovery plan we will get a balanced uh, package of those things that will address the short-term needs, but also start to lay those longer-term foundations for the programme for government, which will go through a full, you know, a full budget assessment process uh, in due course. Okay, thanks, I don't know if, if Karen or Paul want to add anything to that, or if I've, I've fairly represented the extent to which departments have been realistic about what they can really do as part of this recovery plan. Uh, and Jenny, just, just to add from the Department of the Economy perspective that DFE's input to the uh, executive-wide um, recovery plan is fully funded, so that um, uh, the department presented its uh, economic recovery action plan and the 147 actions within that. But, 287 million are costed our funded and are currently being rolled out. Okay, okay, thank you for that. I'll pass to Kiva then to ask a question. Thank you, and Jenny, thanks very much for, for laying that out for us, and we do look forward to seeing the recovery plan. Um, I did have two questions, but I'm going to roll them together. Um, just, I suppose, in terms of coordinating all of the work that this is going to require, it's going to be a big task to coordinate to, you know, to actually deliver on all of these priorities. Um, do you see the recovery or the uh, task force itself as being a model that needs to be continued in terms of doing that? Because, you know, in terms of reaching these these various areas and, and supporting families and supporting job creation and supporting businesses to get back on their feet, that is going to be a big task. So thank you. Uh, yes, I think I think we we it's the task force that has led this work thus far. And I think we do see the task force continuing for some time to help coordinate uh, and get momentum into the recovery because of course we're still in the position where we haven't lifted all of the restrictions. So there is a I suppose there there is a glide path. We're still, if you think of that three-step 
uh, model, which I outlined, we're still in a process of lifting restrictions. We're still not through all of those. Uh, and of course, we we heard the announcement from um, the, the Prime Minister earlier in the week that there was going to be a pause even in, in, in GB in terms of lifting the final tranche of restrictions. So we're still in a process of, of COVID restriction and management. Um, and yet we do need to make a start on the recovery plan. And I think there's a lot of optimism around trying to get momentum into that recovery plan. So we see the task force uh, continuing for some time. But of course, we do have a programme for government machinery, programme for government uh, team. And, and I would hope as we would move maybe through the autumn, we would see some momentum in the recovery plan. We would see the restrictions, the final restrictions being lifted, and we could start to move from recovery towards the uh, the programme for government team. So TEO will still maintain uh, a lead on the overall recovery plan. But as Paul, I think, has indicated, there is a well-worked through economic recovery plan, which DFE will continue to lead. Um, Department for Communities has its five-year strategy, building inclusive communities, and elements of its recovery plan will be moving to deliver against its bigger strategy. So all of the departments are in a similar position with their own departmental strategies, but with a it's not so much a top slice, but with the recovery work really kickstarting and driving their their broader, uh, wider strategy plans. So TEO will continue to, to, I suppose, provide that coordination and that central impetus for some time. It'll be fairly short, but obviously coming from the finance perspective, it will be more related to the finance area. Uh, one of the issues we have is that we've had a lot of sort of the budget for this year has been placed in headroom, but it's come out of headroom now because more money has been available from HM Treasury. But one of the questions we had is related round the uh, sort of the outcomes of the monitoring rounds and the in-year monitoring rounds, and that should have already been reported to the committees already. We haven't seen that. We haven't seen from the other committees, and finance don't have a view yet of in-year monitoring. Have you, as TEO, had a view of in-year monitoring and how? That's going to work particularly towards support for the recovery. And bearing in mind that the health minister has quite rightly pointed out that he needs seven hundred million pounds to be able to get ourselves out of this waiting list, which combines both recovery, your number three on the list, and also sort of the significant impact from NDNA. Uh, what progress has actually been made by the other departments in your coordinating role to get a move on? So uh, Chair, I uh, we have not uh, been party to those uh, in-year monitoring discussions. That work obviously is ongoing with uh, Department of Finance officials, uh, and there is work going on on a on a bilateral basis with the departments, obviously to work through that in-year monitoring round. Um, but again, that's an issue that is is going to need to come back to the executive. Now, I I would see us getting more involved um, in in the coming weeks uh, if we can uh, get consensus from the executive around the recovery plan, um, but I can't report to you any more, any more progress uh, on that. Uh, it's, it's just still in that iterative process between the Department of Finance and, and the individual departments. Thank you for that. Uh, next up, I'm going to ask for Emma Sheeran to be brought up into the spotlight from the Executive Office Committee. Thank you, Chair. Okay, go on ahead with your question. 
Thanks very much, Chair, and thanks uh, to Jenny, Karen and Paul for the presentation. Um, I just wanted to ask a question. I noticed Jenny had made reference during her her commentary around the fact that we know that women have been the, the worst affected throughout this pandemic and obviously the feminist recovery plan that has been published by the, the women's sector has has went into that in great detail and also around the support, the financial packages of support and we know that there were a lot of, of very heavily focused uh, financial support packages to the sectors that were worst impacted by the pandemic but people that were working in key worker roles and I'm thinking particularly of our lowest paid people that were working in food production and in the, the food service industry and in essential retail were offered that sort of financial support and particularly anybody that had to go through a period of self-isolation and was forced to at that point take statutory sick pay. So if someone had four or five periods of self-isolation over the course of the past year, that effectively meant they were living on £200 for that fortnight four or five times in a year. And I wondered if, and I've written to the economy minister about this, or the previous economy minister about this before, if there is any um, attempt to look at, because obviously as where we move out of lockdown, people will still have COVID-19 and when they have symptoms, they are still advised to self-isolate and to follow the procedure. I'm wondering if there's any support being looked at for those lowest paid workers, predominantly women in those sorts of sectors who are basically being told to live on half or a third of what they would ordinarily earn. So thank you. And, and as I indicated in the presentation, um, a significant focus under a, nor a number of the strands of the recovery strategy is around looking at inequalities and particularly um, how we support the most vulnerable and the most disadvantaged as we as we move through recovery. Um, I'm going to ask Karen maybe if from, uh, from from some of the work, particularly with the Department for Communities, um, if she could give a wee bit more granularity around how we envisage doing that as we move into recovery. Karen. Thanks, Jenny, and thanks for the question, Emma. It's a really important one. So right from the start of the response phase back in March through to May last year, there were financial support arrangements put in place for lowest paid workers, but there was a, um, a an earning cap on that. So we were aware that it didn't look after everybody who found themselves in difficulties. Um, as we move out of the current restrictions and into recovery, you're absolutely right. There will still be some people who are facing periods of self-isolation. It may not be their first. Um, over in England, they're doing some thinking about whether there's more innovative ways of looking after people. And we're getting alongside the Emma to see if there's anything we can bring back here, any learning or anything we could introduce. But it is a very difficult area, given the whole set of rules around benefits and caps and earning limits. But it's a really important point. But what we want to do is start to think about things from a citizen's perspective and not, not try to slice up people's lives and really try and help our, um, it, 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 in, in one set of uh, uh, difficult circumstances, we've got to look at the total situations that our citizens are finding themselves in. So are they being asked to self-isolate? Does that create additional problems for their families? What's the knock-on for learning and so on? We've got to look at these issues end-to-end. -end, and that's why we think the benefit of having um, almost a society-wide recovery strategy is better than individual departmental plans we've got to look at everything from the citizens' perspective as we move through the remaining stages of the pandemic. So I, I, I can't give you a perfect answer, Emma, but we are really acutely aware of the problems that people are facing and we want to see what more we can do. 
Thank you for that, Karen. I'm going to pass to Kiva to call somebody from the Economy Committee. Commissioner is next in. Danny for your briefing. Uh, I'm really delighted to see that tackling inequalities is central um, to the uh, COVID recovery. However, I, I do think that there is a piece missing and it needs to get uh, a, a, greater, um, a greater, I suppose, impetus, uh, and that is the issue of childcare. I feel that it is central um, to recovery. Uh, and uh, we need to have affordable childcare, but we also we need childcare um, strategy that faces into the economy as well. I mean, it is driving our economic inactivity. It is driving our low um, employment figures and our low productivity figures. And yet, it's not really central in any of our recovery plans. And I'm just uh, I, I would really like um, Jenny to give me some insight on the work that's going to be done. I think that this is a central theme that must be jointly worked with the Department of Education and with uh, the Department for Economy uh, and more priority should be given to it. We've got an awful lot of vacancies within the economy that are not filled and business organisations are desperately looking for interventions and one of the main interventions that they're asking for is a, a coherent uh, childcare policy and strategy that will address the needs of both the economy and also children's outcomes. So it's, it's another one of those uh, great questions that shows why we need an integrated cross-cutting recovery plan, not just something that looks at, at things down the traditional silos, because absolutely cross-cutting between uh, DFE, Department for Communities, Department for Education. So uh, there, 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 there isn't um, a specific uh, a specific issue there that's looking at childcare in isolation, but we are looking at what are all of those barriers to getting people back into the workplace, to to giving access to skills, and there are things that we've learned, um, and that our stakeholders, particularly in the community and voluntary sector, there's a lot that stakeholders are telling us about um, what what people have been unable to do through the pandemic, but also what they have been able to do. And, and the fact that being able to um, connect and do uh, you know, communication, to do meetings, to do learning online um, as never before, that actually does present opportunities. And it does present um, opportunities, um, particularly uh, in, in, in those difficult areas where there are problems of affordable childcare. So it's a bit, it's a bit like uh, Karen's, um, Karen's answer to, um, uh, to the, the, the previous speaker. Um, we're, we're looking to see what lessons there are. We're looking to the other parts of the UK in terms of um, what, what they're prioritising, what they're looking at. But we're also looking on a cross-cutting basis at what we've learned. And a, a key part of this is, is actually listening as well to those out there on the ground who have been dealing with some of the problems. Um, I think this pandemic has presented a whole new suite of childcare problems um, for many people, for, for those that have had to deal with homeschooling, for those that have been continuing to try and work and you know and have had their children uh, appear on Zoom um, or, or demand. Um, uh, their their mothers or their fathers to uh, to get involved. Um, so there there's a lot of learning, um, Sinead, that we need we need to do, and 
in looking at getting people back to work, we are focusing not specifically uh, on you know, not specifically on a childcare strategy, but what those barriers are, but also those opportunities to get people back into work and to get the skill levels up um, to, to match some of those job opportunities that are there. So you may not, I may not have mentioned it specifically, but it's in there as part of the cross-cutting work that we're doing to try and um, try and enable people to, to take advantage of the recovery. Um, the wider issues in terms of the impact on children and, and young people, um, I think probably are very much in all of our minds at the moment, um, having having um, just seen uh, and, and some people still living through the aftermath of the, uh, the um, I suppose, selection process. Um, and, and I think that is a major concern now, not just in terms of childcare, but in terms of the well-being and the mental health of children and young people, and that will be a significant emphasis um, in terms of the the, the health recovery uh, priorities as as we as we try and work through this. Steve, okay, Pat. Thank you. And thanks for your presentation. I and Lisburn have been lobbied by lots of small businesses, unique businesses, which will be a key driver on where our towns and our city centres want to be. These businesses don't, um, they're not rateable premises and uh, they're not eligible for any of the support schemes. Um, is the EU and the Executive COVID Task Force considering other kinds of support schemes which might help these businesses? Now, taking in mind that, that our town centres, they need to be unique, they need to be welcoming, all of that that goes into that. I myself uh, had a premises next door to Churchill House, IDB House, uh, the passport office. That was in Victoria Square. We were able to operate because the civil servants had moved into the town. You, at your disposal, are able to pass that out and share that vast workforce out in order to increase the flow of traffic. And that's how we will be marking uh, the brief that you have been given. It's how you increase that footfall. And I know it's difficult. It's difficult in, outside of the pandemic, but when we bring the pandemic into it, it's all about getting footfall into our towns and into our cities. And with that comes increased night footfall because it's not an eight-hour, a nine-hour economy. We need to be operating on a 15, 16-hour economy. Thanks. So perhaps if I could start, and then maybe I'll, I'll turn to uh, Paul just to say a little bit about the wider um, uh, economic development priorities. And I think perhaps this this maybe will will stray into um, the the subsequent briefing that's coming on from the, the High Street Task Force. But if, if I address a couple of aspects of that, and again, um, I think there are a couple of things in here. Um, one thing we have seen. Um, through the, the particularly these latter stages of the pandemic as we've started to, to lift some of the restrictions we have seen the creativity of many of our local businesses particularly uh, in terms of trying to build um, that longer economy that it's not a nine to five economy as, as you say anymore that we stretch 
um, the, the duration and, and offer different things. So, you know, the street cafe culture, which many of us will know from, you know, from, from traveling around in, in areas where the weather is maybe rather more predictable and, and warmer. We've seen real creativity from many um, small business owners, cafes, um, shops, um, as well as bars and restaurants in terms of providing outdoor offerings. Um, and, and I think we would really like to see a lot of that continue. We'd like to see it. We'd like to encourage it. Um, and again, that's something that the High Street Task Force, I think, will pick up and say a little bit more uh, about in the subsequent briefing. Um, on the issue about um, the, the civil servants returning to uh, returning to their offices, uh, particularly in the in the larger city centres, I think there's a real uh, a real challenge here because the civil service has actually shown itself to be capable of being agile and deliver. Think of the benefit services, for example. There, there, there wasn't any loss in continuity with civil servants unable to be there face to face, um, delivering benefits. We've been able to use technology to allow a continuity of service right across the civil service, and and that has been really good in very many ways. And I think going forward, the work that the Department of Finance is leading on um, on new ways of working. We will see civil servants coming back into their offices, perhaps working different hours, different work patterns. We'll maybe see more blended working with some working from home and some working back in the office. All of that, I think, will come and will have to go hand in hand with the lifting of the remaining restrictions, which will really help um, our, you know, kickstart the, the the economy in our local um, towns and cities. But Paul might want to say a little bit about some of the other wider economic plans um, uh, in terms of the entire economy getting a boost and an uplift, because obviously if people um, have more spending power, if they have jobs, um, rather than the uncertainty of furlough, then there's, there's, more, uh, there's more opportunity for spending power on our high streets as well. Thank you, and it's all right. It's all right to come in just on that point before you go to Paul. I mean, I, I'm really, uh, as well, uh, interested or trying to find out how we're going to support these small businesses that weren't eligible uh, simply because they are not paying their rates. Do you have a scheme in the COVID task force in order to address this? There, there, there isn't a specific, there isn't a specific scheme there, um, but you know, I think the wider activities in terms of lifting restrictions and energising through that high street task force is how I think we see and, and how ministers see um, those smaller businesses getting back into, getting back into operation again. Looking after. I, I don't know, Paul. Yes, that's all right. Okay. We, we have just, I'm conscious, Jenny, as well, we've got about eight minutes left and there's probably about five or six other members that are looking to come in, so we're going to have to breach beyond three o'clock, but we'll try and keep it as short as possible. Um, could I move to um, the online system and bring in, please, Martina Anderson? Uh, thank you, Jenny, Karen and Paul. And Chair, I will try and keep it to one question and focus primarily, Jenny, on what you said about tackling inequality being a, a priority in the COVID recovery plan. And as you rightly stated, 
inequalities that have been made worse by COVID. Um, but what I would like to ask you about the plans that had been in place to try and tackle inequality in areas, for instance, like my own constituency in Derry before COVID. So when you consider matters that were in new decade, new approach, such as the expansion of McGee University and 10,000 students, where do those matters fit in to the building back better? Um, the, the phrase that is being used in the context of tackling uh, inequalities. And I say that as um, the, the regional inequality spokesperson for Sinn Féin, and obviously I'm quite focused on the 10,000 students uh, for Derry. So the, there, are, there are many initiatives that departments are taking forward that will continue that aren't a specific part of the recovery plan. The recovery plan is designed on prioritising those things that we, we believe are needed to address many of the challenges that have come specifically because of the pandemic. And obviously there are ongoing issues there, ongoing work in terms of, of McGee campus um, and, and uh, Ulster University, indeed Ulster University and all its campuses. Um, that work is still ongoing and that work will, will continue. We're focusing within the, the recovery strategy um, at, at those things that will try and get to um, some of the specific issues that have arisen as a result of COVID, um, but it won't, it won't stop ongoing work um, that departments are already taking forward in, in, any other, in other areas. So there isn't, a specific, um, there isn't a specific proposal there in relation to McGee because that work already has, um, it has a, um, a, a momentum around it. And I understand, your, I understand your concerns. And I think a key thing will be lifting of the restrictions and getting students back, not going forward. I think Ulster University has indicated it would like to get back to having students on the campus, not doing remote teaching uh, and remote learning, but actually getting that buzz and those 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 numbers of students coming back in. And, and that's true for, for the Belfast, Coleraine and the McGee campuses, um, just as one example. So I think there the lifting of restrictions is going to be the catalyst to really getting um, getting the universities back up and running again. Okay. Well, I suppose from our point of view, Chair, just if we're trying to stop the brain drain from going elsewhere uh, and we're trying to both attract people into the city as well as keeping students in the city. So listening to you, and I can understand, of course, we have to address the implications of COVID, but we also have to make sure that those inequalities and matters that had been identified before COVID aren't actually pushed to the back of a queue. And I can tell you from the point of view of those of us from, who represent Derry, uh, we're very frustrated because uh, of what is happening around McGee and the lack of progress there. So that is something, Jenny, that I, I would like you to take on board and the officials to take on board as well. Okay, Kiva. Bring John O'Dowd into the spotlight, please. Okay, John O'Dowd, please, into the spotlight for a question. Uh, hello, and thank you to everyone for their presentation and, and answers thus far. Janet, you've talked about an integrated recovery plan uh, and the need for priorities to be set. Uh, yesterday, the Health Minister introduced his plan to cut waiting lists, uh, and I think the estimated cost is around £700 million uh, over five years. And I'm going to put it on record. I think that's achievable. 
what will, will require is for executive colleagues to set priorities and to say to their own departments and the public, there's things that won't be happening because we're prioritizing health. But can I ask, was Minister Swan's plan part of the integrated recovery plan and was it discussed at executive level to achieve that executive support that would be required? So, um, as, as you will know, obviously, from um, the Building Inclusive Communities strategy uh, uh, coming out of um, Department for Communities, but also uh, the 10x economic strategy uh, from DFE, there, you know, the departments are all thinking not just in terms of the short term next couple of years recovery, they're thinking about the longer term um, strategic plans. And, and Minister Swan, I think, is presenting um, his his plan in in that longer term context. And what we're trying to do with the, the integrated recovery plan is make sure that there are some things we're starting now that will address some of the problems from COVID. But there are other things that we're initiating now in the next, um, you know, in the next 12 to 24 months that will feed into those bigger strategic plans. So it's not an either or. Um, it's a, it's a, I suppose it's a glide path. I can't think of any other way. Sorry, that sounds very civil service -y, But, you know, we have a programme for government. Departments have their individual and ministers have their individual longer-term strategies. What we're looking at for the recovery plan is something that will help bridge between recovering out of the pandemic into that more business as usual, thinking about the, those big systemic underlying issues which are still there to be addressed. So it's a... It's, I suppose this is a bridging strategy to help kickstart those bigger strategies like Minister Swan's um, more um, you know, ambitious longer-term plan. Well, well, if I was looking my executive, as a former minister, if I was looking my executive colleagues to prioritise my department, first place I would have went to was my executive colleagues and said, here's my plan, and this is what you need to prioritise my plan. I think it would be fair to say that um, the the executive um, has been focused on you know on on three big areas on uh, recovery of the economy, on wider societal recovery, and on health sector recovery. I think they they have you know there is no doubt in the minds of executive ministers that there are massive challenges uh, for recovery of the health service massive challenges and that that must be a priority when when we come to negotiations with Treasury around funding. Um, and I know these points were made and made very uh, firmly by both um, former First Minister and the Deputy First Minister at, for example, the British Irish Council, recovery of the health service um, and, and the significant funding implications was, was front and centre um, of the discussions, for example, at, at BIC. So, um, I, I, I think you're asking if the uh, if the specific plan and the details of Minister Swan's plan went to the executive. Um, no, they didn't. But um, I, I'm confident that the executive has given a very clear signal from the start of the pandemic that you know we must focus on the health service and on its recovery. Okay, thank you, thank you for that. There, I'm going to have to move on and ask Steve for Matthew. Chairs, uh, and thank you um, to those giving evidence. Um, Jenny, following on from your last question, when the executive goes to the Treasury ahead of spending review discussions, 
later this year, what will be the key strategic document you will be using to ask for uh, a budget settlement? What will it, will it be the recovery strategy you are talking about now, or will it be the programme for government that is in draft? Or signed um, I I am I'm very sorry that I can't um, answer with any certainty as to what the executive um, might might do, uh, uh, but I would hope um, that they would be using the priorities which have been identified through a very iterative process um, in developing the recovery document. Uh, I'm hoping that that would form the basis of the ask, um, but I think um, just uh, referring back to um, Mr. O'Dowd's point, I think, oh, I, I think undoubtedly, um, some of the significant asks around uh, dealing with waiting lists in the health service uh, are going to be very high on on the list of priorities, uh, and I don't know what uh, what the recovery package might look like in terms of what the Chancellor of the Exchequer might be considering. The sorts of problems that we face here. Uh, in terms of some of those big funding challenges are not necessarily unique. Some of them may be um, more pointy, um, uh, and we may be, you know, more of a we, we may have more of a challenge with some of those issues. Thinking about the waiting lists in particular, but I think all of the devolved administrations are wanting to get in to understand how the UK government will help everyone, um, and on a on a cross sectoral basis. Um, how uh, they'll put together a package to help with that recovery and help kickstart it. So I would hope that the work we've done, if we can get that um, agreed by the executive, um, starting tomorrow, I, I hope, um, then that, that that will be the basis for their decisions. But um, I, I can't preempt where where they might go, um, or what the, the the process that the the finance minister will bring forward. Okay, and do you are you confident that your replacement, who will have a slightly different functional role to you, because she won't be responsible for managing the executive office, are you confident that she will have the political leverage shorn of that responsibility? Are you confident she will have the political leverage to um, coordinate in the way that she needs to and to and to drive through that uh, agreed set of priorities? So I, I, I think part of the, the reason for splitting the role uh, and, and the reason I recommended it to First and Deputy First Minister was to make sure that the Hawks does have that freedom um, and does have that ability um, to use their convening power um, to, to bring together a, a more joined up integrated uh, civil service and, and uh, a more joined up integrated uh, support and, and offering to ministers. So uh, she will be, um, Jane Brady will be starting, um, I think on the, yet to be finalised, but round about uh, the end of August, uh, start of September. Um, and I will be using the time between now and then working alongside the new TEO permanent secretary, who, who is, is going to be Dennis McMahon, um, uh, currently in the Department of Agriculture. Uh, he will be starting within the next couple of weeks, and we will be working um, to, I suppose, to do that. I suppose that carve up of of the the, the responsibilities that I have now, and make sure that TEO is a fully just, functional standalone just, uh, department which sorry, can deliver 
um, program for government and all of the other uh, all of the other support programs, leaving Jane as the new Hawks um, much freer to do the job of supporting the executive um, and managing the overall civil service in a much more holistic way. So I'm hopeful. Um, I think is the answer to your your question. There, did we? Uh, sir, I think we did. Uh, sorry, Jenny, sorry, just as chair of the finance, finance Committee here, could you just explain again who is going to be the new chair of the TEO? Because I think this is news to us and indeed is news to the chair of the Executive Committee as well. So, uh, the First and Deputy First Minister were consulted, all ministers were, um, were consulted and um, permanent secretaries were invited to offer expressions of interest. Uh, Dennis McMahon um, was one of those who uh, uh, indicated that they were uh, they were interested, and I advised uh, departmental ministers uh, this morning uh, that uh, he is is to take over. The, well, not take over because there is nothing to take over. He will be uh, the new TEO permanent secretary. Um, a note. A note should have gone to the chair of the TU committee. I'm, I'm not sure what happened there, so I can only apologise, Chair. Uh, a note did go this morning to departmental ministers to advise them, so um, I'm, I'm glad of the opportunity to at least clarify that for the committees. Um, Dennis, Dennis's start date has not been agreed because there isn't there isn't a ready-made job sitting there. That will be something now to, to um, be um, to be worked through based on on the job descriptions for the new head of the service and for the new TEO role. It's probably fallen down behind the sofa that all the other updates that should have come to the executive office committee come to because we literally are often we are often the last to be informed of anything given that. Um, Dennis will be taking over a split role that we weren't informed about either, so I suppose that makes no difference there. Um, could we ask for uh, Pat Sheehan, please, to be brought up into the um, spotlight, as long as Pat hasn't been made First Minister or something that we haven't been told about either? But maybe, Pat, will it, you're still just a member there. Uh, thanks, Colin. I was going to spring that on you, but maybe you've already uh, heard a whisper about it. <laughs> uh, Jenny, just in terms of uh, COVID recovery, um, one of the areas where there's going to have to be a serious focus is on our children and young people. Uh, in the Education Committee this morning, we received evidence from the, the Children's Commissioner and from the Children's Law Centre. And it was interesting that both of them talked about a tsunami of uh, emotional and well-being issues and mental health problems uh, arising out of the pandemic among our, our, our young people. And it's interesting because that was the same term that the mental health champion Siobhan O'Neill used when she presented to the committee uh, a few months back. And uh, I mean, despite having asked the, well, it's now the former education minister about uh, putting in place a comprehensive, integrated and cross-departmental plan to tackle the problems that are going to uh, are going to be the result of the pandemic. Nothing serious uh, or comprehensive has so far been done. So in terms of uh, recovery, if our young people can't recover uh, from what has happened, 
we're going to face serious, serious problems for many years to come. So why has there been no mention of that in the plan? So I, I, I think in response to one of the other members, I, I did talk about the concerns that there are around particularly the mental health um, of, our, of our young people. Um, and, and that is part of the overall recovery plan in terms of, I suppose we've, we've looked at it in the context primarily of the health of the population. I think we don't yet know the full implications, particularly for our young people um, of the pandemic. We can see some of the immediate impacts um, that it, it has uh, had in terms of their schooling. Um, but I think the longer-term health impacts um, are are still to be uh, still to be worked through. So I'm going to invite Karen to say a little bit more about the dialogue we've had with the Department for Education uh, around some of the specific um, issues that it has been prioritising as part of the recovery plan. But I think the wider issue in terms of the ongoing health of our, our children and young people is something which is very much uh, in in uh, covered by that. Uh, health recovery piece. Thanks, Jenny. No, that's absolutely right. Um, Department for Education have been involved with us in the development of the plan, and you will see abuse for children um, probably across all four of the accelerators because, as Emma said earlier, you know, if we're thinking about um, working women with, with, with children, then we, with those two ends of that story there in terms of tackling inequalities plus the jobs, plus the future skills, health of the population. We're all desperately worried about what's coming. We completely agree. And also, what's the future for um, the younger people in terms of green growth and sustainability? But I just want to assure you that conversation we've had at official level throughout this is to constantly remind ourselves that in a programme for government timeframe, which is normally about 10 years, today's eight-year-olds that are going back into school are the adults in the timeframe. And we've really got to think about that long-term bit, Pat, as well as the short-term recovery bit. And I want to assure you um, there are issues in the plan for children. The executive was always concerned about this and had had a couple of updates on um, issues for vulnerable children that had been worked on jointly from Department of Health and um, Department for Education. And it, it's been a regular discussion executive. So... Um, it will it will not be lost in this, and if we have to raise the profile a bit higher, then then we will do that. Thanks for that. And I suppose one of the issues that has been flagged up to us, and uh, the not just the education committee, it was also an issue when I was on the health committee, was that there are there continue to be difficulties in cross departmental working and interagency cooperation and collaboration. Uh, what's going to be done to try and rectify that? Thanks. Um, I, I think that's why we need this plan. Otherwise, we'll have a series of departmental plans that will all be really, really good at tackling specific issues. The purpose of the plan, um, absolutely, our core brief was to produce a plan that would drive collaboration. And as Jenny said at the outset, one of the things we've learned from COVID is that we're better when we work together. And that's also how we will deliver best on a future programme for government. So it's it's my driving motivation is to get departments together. And so far, um, that's what we've seen in the development of the plan. People talking across departmental boundaries and really thinking about outcomes for citizens. Because if it's not about that, um, then we, we've lost the point somewhere. So we would completely agree with the importance of what you've just said there. 
Okay. Thank you. I think just if I can if I can just um, add to that by saying part part of the reason for splitting the roles um, uh, for the the head of the civil service and a separate permanent secretary in TEO is to give greater emphasis to cross-cutting working and to breaking down those silos. Um, it's it's uh, it's challenging, um, in uh, you know given the the, the five-party mandatory coalition structure that we have, it is challenging with ministers having um, you know their their own agendas. But as Karen says, what what working together through the pandemic has shown is is the necessity of getting joined up decisions and joined up working and and the ways of working that we that I've referred to and the ways of working for the civil service that have been facilitated um, through you know through Zoom or Teams or some of the the other remote platforms that has shown that, that we can actually collaborate much more effectively and also engage much more effectively and much more frequently with our stakeholders. And the consistent piece of feedback that I keep getting is that um, all of those stakeholders out there, whether they're in the business community, um, whether they are uh, in the, the voluntary and community sector, it doesn't matter what sector it is, they have had more access and more dialogue with civil servants uh, than, than they've ever had. And, and I can't see any going back from that. I think we want to continue to make sure that we're working much more closely, not only across departments, but also with wider sectors who have such a critical role to play, uh, particularly when it comes to some of these children, you know, these issues for children and young people. So I think splitting the roles will, um, will help give a greater impetus to that as well. Okay, thank you. Um, Thanks, Jack. Again, I'm at pains to say that it's good to hear the rationale for splitting the roles after that's happened and they've been appointed, but it would have been nice to have heard about it beforehand, but we're not going to be able to go over that uh, again. I'll pass to, to Kiva for one more member, I think, that they have. Yep. That Mike. <clears throat> Jenny, on the theme of never waste a crisis, have you identified the opportunity? So uh, I think that's that's a great question, and it's part of the the work that we're trying uh, to make some time to to think about now in terms of, um, sorry, in terms of, you know, doing a bit of reflection on what has worked and what hasn't worked. I think I've referred to a couple of the things in terms of the opportunities that we're seeing across the civil service to work in different ways and in more agile ways, and um, but I think the same is true. Um, you know, right across, right across economy and society. Again, I mean, if I'm taking it as an example, some of the work that we have done, uh, and particularly the Department for Communities has done, working alongside third sector partners. When I talk to Seamus McAlevey, you know, he talks about how easy it has been to quickly get together to solve problems, to identify issues. If I look at some of the challenges that we've seen at interface areas, I think about how quickly we've been able to pull people together, all of the people who, who we think are needed to help solve the problems. You know, we, we have proved to ourselves and to our stakeholders that we can be more agile. So I think there is a lessons learned exercise which um, we are beginning to do. Departments and departmental perm sex are doing that individually, but I think we have an opportunity to bring that back together. Um, and I think we, you know, your point is well made. Um, there is learning and there is positive coming out of, of how we have worked through this pandemic and we don't we don't want to lose that. Um, but uh, I hope you will understand that we are 
we are seriously multitasking at the moment in terms of still dealing with restrictions and still dealing with all of those support schemes and liaison with businesses and liaison with wider society and dealing with uh, the ongoing challenges that are still being presented by coronavirus and, and the, the Delta variant. We're working through that. We're working through the recovery strategy uh, and, and we're working to ensure that the executive is working as effectively as it can. So it's... Um, it, it's hard to find the bandwidth to look back and reflect and see the opportunities, but it's a it's a great point, and I think I think we have some really good lessons, uh, and we just want to make sure we land those and and don't lose some of those benefits. Thank you. I think I think lessons learned and opportunities identified are, are two separate things, but on a continuum. And I wish you well. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks, Chair. Very welcome, uh, Jenny, uh, um, and I now recognise you as well too. Uh, uh, I have never actually met you before, so it's a good opportunity. Um, uh, in this respect, Jenny, that uh, you talked there about um, uh, inequalities earlier on, and that one of the accelerators again too is the health service. And it's very often easy to identify uh, inequalities if we talk about background, or if we talk about women, or uh, things of that nature. Uh, but I'm actually referring here to a geographical uh, inequality uh, as a representative for West Tyrone and the most westerly part of West Tyrone as well. Now, we were confronted just exactly with the same waiting list as everyone else in the north of Ireland. But over and above that, whenever it gets down to some of the delivery of other basic services and so on, that inequality exists as well. Uh, I think just of an accident that we had there just a number of years ago uh, in my own area, and that the ambulance had to come all the way from Ballyshannon, almost 40 miles, uh, to deal with that person at that time uh, of a very serious accident. So that's an example of the kind of inequality that exists geographically. And I wonder to what extent that in addressing these inequalities, is it that integrated, that where it embraces all these other services, and integrated with provision as well too, uh, within uh, the Republic of Ireland, where without doubt in this case, it just highlights how much we're dependent on each other. So, I, I, as I think I've said, there are, the recovery strategy will not be able to deal with, with everything. And some of those inequality issues that you refer to, those are, you know, clearly those are, are long-standing uh, and systemic issues. Um, and you know you you'll be aware that the funding model that the Department of Health currently operates within um, is is widely recognised as not being fit for for purpose, uh, particularly when we think about the critical importance of of long term investment. So some of those challenges that you refer to, um, you know, will they've been exacerbated perhaps by the pandemic, but they will need to be dealt with in that longer term and primarily through the programme for government. I think in terms of some of the other inequality issues, um, you know, one of the one of the interesting pieces of work that has come out of the Department of Finance looking at um looking at um new ways of working is some of the work that uh, has been done around establishing um these uh, hubs, civil service hubs, outside of the main uh, population centres um, to, to try and facilitate people working at home and close to home. 
um, and, and establishing centres or hubs um, that will be operational um, on an ongoing basis so that people aren't necessarily having to travel uh, long distances from home to work, say, in, in the centre of Belfast or within the Stormont Estate. Uh, so that those hub projects, I think, those regional connect to hubs um, are being developed to try and help bridge that gap. So I know it's not answering the specific question about uh, about the, the health inequalities, and, and I understand the example you gave around the ambulance service, but you know, those are longer term systemic problems that um that you know the programme for government um will will address in the wider context um of long term recovery. But in the shorter term, there are some things that I think we can do uh, in terms particularly of how public services have been delivered um, to perhaps um, rebalance um, the location of, of, of some folk delivering some of those critical public services. I understand just the position in, in relation to hubs and so on, but unfortunately, you know, that uh, very often it's underpinned by the fact that people are travelling to Belfast and there's justifying, we'll say, the development of a hub, whereas in many ways I don't think it should just be based on that kind of long-term travel. But uh, I make the point again, too, that there are other services and that, that should be located within rural areas where it isn't dependent on service the greater number of people. That very often underpins what happens in terms of location of services in, in the more urbanised areas or in the cities. Thank you. It's Kiva here again, and I want to return to the, the childcare issue. The, the childcare strategy is kind of this nebulous thing that has been in development for a long time, and, and there's a fair bit of frustration around that. It sits primarily with education, and obviously there's child development and early years education, so understandable in some ways, but um, affordable and accessible childcare um, is very much an economic issue, particularly in terms of removing barriers and, and particularly for women. So do you think we're looking at childcare in the right way? And is it time for a different approach now as part of the recovery for the development of the childcare strategy? So I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that there's anything more I can really say at, at this stage in terms of the work we've been doing um, around recovery. It is very much aimed at looking at new ways of working, looking at the, the benefits that we can get from technology, many of which we have learned through the course of this pandemic, um, but also the focus that um, I mentioned and that I think Paul referred to as well in terms of the emphasis on skills and preparing people more for the uh, the workforce. I'm, I'm not in a position, I'm afraid, to comment in, in, in any more detail about the specific, you know, childcare strategy and strategies that that are there with the Department for Communities uh, uh, and so on, because those are those are ongoing strategies. I know we will try within the, the recovery strategy to prioritise those things that are barriers um, to people fully participating in the workforce, and um, but also. Uh, opportunities and enablers to get people back, particularly um, those who have family and, and caring responsibilities. Um, I don't know whether Paul can add anything more in terms of women in the economy um, that, that, that perhaps would help address some of, of Kiva's um, concerns. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Jenny. And just, I guess, just to highlight three areas that I think um, Dialect really engage with this and hopefully give you an illustration of those, that collaboration that 
both Jenny and came uh, mentioned, but also came up in earlier questions. I think there's the, the skills strategy that's out for consultation has diversity inclusion as a, as a real core pillar, and there's a, there's a specific group that's targeting that and 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 looking at that issue, and obviously women in the economy are a key part of that. There's a program of work that's uh, looking at women in STEM that um, you'll be familiar with, Kiva, uh, and that is bringing in colleagues from the Department for Education about how do we get uh, more women in the economy, particularly working in these uh, STEM areas. And then there's a separate collaboration with partners in Belfast City Council uh, and New Beginnings, which uh, includes women, but also neurodiversity. Um, again, specifically looking at how do we get um, uh, women that either fallen out of the, the, the labour market or in different jobs into um, those 10x types of jobs that we've we've talked about in previous economy committee sessions. So there's, there's there's a lot of work happening within economy. All of that is highly integrated with colleagues across different parts of the department. And thanks, Jenny, Karen, and, and Paul for your information so far. My question relates around uh, executive and the effectiveness of the. COVID recovery interventions to date, for example, LRSS, and obviously the business rates holiday, which is obviously now going on for the second year. So that'll be two years of no, no rates for businesses. What's been the effectiveness of that? Obviously, we all know on the ground, but what's your assessment of that? Um, I'm, I'm, in, I'm, I'm not in a position to talk, I suppose, in, in a lot of detail about the LRSS, but I think Paul, or yes, Paul might be able to say a little bit in terms of, you know, the numbers of businesses that have been helped. Um, I, I think it's easy to think about the counterfactual in terms of if we hadn't had the LRSS, if we hadn't had those support measures in place, um, how much worse the economy would be. Um, and I don't know uh, to, to, to what extent um, the chief economist or the, the department for the economy has made an assessment um, at this stage, other than uh, other than the, just the numbers and the amount of money that has been provided, uh, I hope I'm not um, giving you a hospital pass there, Paul. But I know um, uh, I know that there have been some work done um, by Shane and the team in in DFE around the the impact of the schemes. Yeah, so it's um, so, so LOSS was delivered by colleagues in finance. So I don't know if they've done any. It's too early to do any post project evaluation. Certainly from from a DFE perspective, there were seven schemes rolled out, close to 40,000 supported, and in the region, 500 million pounds supported uh, as a result of those interventions. That's um, you know, on top of and in collaboration with the schemes from Treasury through the furlough and that's, um, the self employed income support scheme. Um, we've not done any um, detailed post project evaluation to uh, assess. Um, the counterfactual that what, what might have been, but certainly through any engagement that we've had at official level or at ministerial level, the feedback from trade bodies and individual businesses is overwhelmingly positive. That it was game changing for them that they wouldn't be here, uh, they wouldn't be in business, they wouldn't be able to bounce back into this recovery phase if it weren't for that unprecedented levels of support. Right there, please. Do, do you want to just maybe ask your? Ah, there you go. Yes, John. Do you want to go ahead there? Sorry, is it me? Uh, yeah. Sorry, it broke up a wee bit there. So sorry. And uh, Johnny, in your introductory remarks, you referred to the fact that other jurisdictions have had to revise uh, their opening dates and plans for 
full reopening of society as a result of the spread of the new Delta variant. Uh, I, I sincerely hope that the executive is in a position to meet tomorrow or certainly this week to uh, continue with its work and endorse uh, the, your, the plan, if, that, if that's the will of the executive. But have you been able to take into account in the plan the, the spread of the new Delta variant and what impact that will have on plans for, for a quicker reopening, which we all hope for? So everything that we've been doing um, throughout uh, the pandemic, everything the task force has been doing and all of the executive decisions have obviously been informed by the latest public health advice. I've literally just seen an email flash across my screen to say um, that uh, Minister Swan uh, is, is hoping to be in a position to provide an update along with the chief medical officer and the chief, uh, the CSA tomorrow in terms of the, the Delta variant. I think we were expecting this anyway. We were expecting to have an update this week because the in-principle decisions taken by the executive on the 10th of June were all dependent on a further week of data and in particular uh, a further look at the spread of the Delta variant. So I, I, I'm just not in a position to second guess what that, uh, what that briefing from the chief medical officer and, and the health minister will say. Um, but. I know it's going to be critical to informing whether or not we do, and sorry, we whether in fact the executive ratifies the package that was agreed in principle last week. Um, it is concerning. We are watching to see what is is happening in other jurisdictions, um, and clearly it was a very significant decision that was taken by by Boris Johnson not to proceed with the lift, the final lifting of restrictions. So I think there is a, a sense of uncertainty around the spread of the Delta variant here, and it will, I've no doubt it will impact on, on the ability to, to, to lift the remaining restrictions. Um, and I think that's got to be, you know, the public health advice and the evidence has informed all the decision making. So irrespective of what has happened in other jurisdictions, um, the executive here has been guided very much by uh, the advice coming from the CMO and the CSA. Okay, thank you. And our final, final question, because of time constraints, I'm going to pass over to my constituency colleague, Jim, Jim Wells. Uh, Jenny, it would be remiss of me to say at this point that occasionally departments get things absolutely right, and we are, tend to be rather critical, but your, the LRSS team have been absolutely magnificent. And I have just this morning concluded my last case of LRSS in South Down. Every one of them has been solved to the satisfaction of the company or the business concerned. So whatever they're doing, maybe civil service generally should try and find out what their success has been in terribly difficult circumstances. I don't think I've ever been able to write to the department and say, that's the last case, folks. They're all solved and everybody's happy. I don't think that's ever happened in my 40 years in politics. But just could I ask you a, a more difficult question. Uh, let's ask that more of an assertion rather than a question. What does happen if we hit a political crisis and there is no executive meeting to sign off on the recovery plan? What level of discretion do you and your other team have to implement this, or does everything stop dead in its tracks? So um, I, will, I will absolutely take um, the positive feedback to the LRSS team and the Department of Finance, and I think it is a good reflection. It's great to hear a good reflection on, um, on a team that previously wouldn't have been delivering a grant scheme at all. So thank you for that, Jim. It's much appreciated. 
uh, I mean, the reality is that decisions on the regulations and the restrictions and indeed on the recovery plan, its priorities and its funding, those decisions must be taken by, by the executive as a whole. That has always been the position and, and that remains the position. Um, so without an executive in place, um, we don't have a means um, of, of moving forward either to lift further restrictions or to implement uh, the recovery strategy. Have you not been given any executive discretion or your team to carry out even the most basic aspects of the recovery plan? Well, nothing has been presented yet to the executive That's, that was due to happen this week. But as, as far as I'm concerned, I'm, I'm, I've got to work on the basis that I'm planning for the resumption of normal business. We're still within the seven-day period for nominations, um, and there is a duty on parties to nominate. So as far as I'm concerned, we're still within that window of proceeding um, with normal business. And if that proves not to be the case, well, then we'll need to look at, at what the other options might be. But, but clearly, those are potentially much more significant options. Jenny, can I take this opportunity to thank you and your team for coming along today? It was uh, a mammoth session of an hour and a half on yourself. I appreciate that, giving us the majority uh, of the answers. Um, we appreciate the information that you've provided us with, and we understand that there was a lot of information that you would like to have provided us with, but weren't able to, and also probably some information that you probably wished that you hadn't told us, or at least probably had wished that we had found out in another way. But we appreciate you coming along here uh, and giving us the update. We wish you well with your work. I was going to ask you to come in and give us an update about your successor, but I think you've given that answer uh, earlier, uh, and you've given the timescale there that the new uh, head of civil service will come on board. But we wish you all the best with your work. Um, for members present, what I'm going to suggest is taking a two-minute break, just a two-minute comfort break for members, uh, before we get the other people up into the spotlight and continue on with the meeting. So if we could take two minutes, please, and reconvene again for the next session. Thank you very much all. Thank you. Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme signed.
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary 
program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary, program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary, program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary, program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary, program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary, program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary, program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary, program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary, program signed. Okay, members, you're all very welcome back to the second part of our concurrent committee meeting today. Um, this section of the meeting is going to look at the High Street uh, Recovery, the High Street Task Force, um, and we have a number of officials that are along to help us with that today. We have Chris Stewart, uh, who is from the Executive Office. I know he has a grand title, Deputy Secretary of Strategic Policy, Equality and Good Relations. Uh, and we're also being joined by Mark O'Donnell from the Department uh, for Communities, given the cross-cutting nature uh, of that. We'd be pleased to know that we couldn't have fitted a fourth committee in, so we don't have any representatives from the Communities Committee, but um, we know that it does uh, cut across to some of their workload as well. Um, we will maybe allow yourself, Chris, to give us some form of an input, uh, and then we'll move to questioning after that. So I'll hand over to yourself. Uh, thank you, Chair. Good afternoon, uh, members. Chair, yes, if it meets with your approval, I'd perhaps begin uh, and just remind members of the background to the development of the High Streets Task Force, and then I'll hand over to Mark, who said a bit more about the current state of play. And doing so, I think we'll touch on why we are it's a, a form of double act for this uh, and why it's important that we have uh, very close working between our two departments on it. Uh, members will recall that the High Streets Task Force was first announced in September of last year, and that announcement was very much in a COVID or COVID recovery context. But as we'll go on to say, the focus of the task force work, task force work is very much on issues that predate COVID and will unfortunately most probably long outlast COVID. Um, following the announcement, uh, there was some early uh, engagement at official level with the English, Scottish and Welsh, Welsh task forces or, or equivalent bodies, uh, and then some subsequent engagement with local stakeholders, and that included Retail Northern Ireland, uh, CBI, Hospitality Ulster, the Institute of Directors, the Northern Ireland Retail Consortium, the Northern Ireland Chamber of Commerce and Trade, Federation of Small Businesses, NICFA, NILGA, Belfast City Council and NICICTU. So a fairly broad spread uh, and I'm very grateful to colleagues from all of those organisations for giving very generously of their time uh, in, in that process. Um, one of the most pleasing things and perhaps unusual things about that uh, very broad engagement was the very high degree of consensus amongst those stakeholders on the issues that needed to be addressed. And there was common recognition that our town and city centres 
face a very broad range of economic and social challenges. And that whilst the COVID pandemic has undoubtedly exacerbated them, many of those challenges are, as I said, long-standing. And they stem from things like the financial crisis of 2009, prolonged underinvestment in infrastructure, and of course, changing patterns of consumer behavior. And we've all seen uh, very significant examples of uh, disappointing retail announcements over the course of the last year. There was a very broad consensus amongst stakeholders that uh, this calls for a strategic response with departments, stakeholders and local government working in partnership to deliver a vision for sustainable town and city centres as thriving and sustainable hubs for retail, services, hospitality and the residential sector, much more of a mixed economy than perhaps the, the typical concept uh, of a high street. And looking at established practice elsewhere and the other task forces, a number of elements that were, were, were common to their success, having a long-term vision with a strategic approach to delivery, having an emphasis on local civic leadership and capacity, having a role in contributing to and influencing policy with access to ministers seen as something which was very important, a role in bringing together a range of programmes and initiatives, uh, both new and existing, to increase synergy and efficiency, a role in the production of guidance and best practice documentation, and a role, uh, a direct role in delivering uh, projects and funding schemes, although the importance of that does vary from place to place. Having considered that feedback from stakeholders, ministers then asked for a reference group to be established, and that comprised uh, most of the stakeholders already mentioned, Retail NI, Hospitality Ulster, the Business Alliance, um, Nilga, Solis, and the relevant executive departments. And that reference group was asked to develop terms of reference for the task force proper, advise on additional membership, and to examine in a bit more detail the Scottish, Welsh, and English approaches and make recommendations to TEO ministers uh, and the executive. And ministers provided a number of steers uh, to inform uh, the group's work uh, to, to shape the output. Firstly, on vision, they asked the group to develop uh, a vision around a strategic response uh, to the economic and social challenges uh, that, that I've mentioned, very much reflecting the language uh, that the stakeholders uh, had advised of. In terms of the role and function, uh, uh, ministers suggested that a bespoke approach should be ad adopted for Northern Ireland, but with a starting point of the Scottish approach as a template for the role and function of the task force here. And we'll say a little bit more in due course about how the thinking around that developed. In terms of the scope of the task force, ministers asked that it should include all towns and cities, but not overlap or duplicate the work of the existing City Deals Initiative. In terms of its structure and governance, ministers asked that the task force should be an informal structure, so not a creature of statute or a quango, but that it should have some formal governance arrangements uh, centred on programme and project management. And it should therefore have a project board, which should be chaired by ministers, but including st key stakeholders as full project board members. So with the emphasis on co-design and co-delivery uh, and not merely on consultation. The reference group uh, met four times in fairly rapid succession. And again, very grateful to colleagues in the organisations and other departments for the time and effort that they put into that. Once again, there was a very high degree of consensus within the group uh, on uh, what its recommendations should be particularly grateful for the effort put in because it came at a very, very difficult time for all of those organisations and the sectors that they represent and their members. 
So the group then provided recommendations to ministers building on the initial uh, steer that ministers had, had provided, and ministers accepted most of the recommendations in, in total. Firstly, in relation to the vision, ministers accepted the vision suggested by the reference group, which is sustainable city, town and village centres, which are thriving places for people to do business, socialise, shop, be creative and use public services, as well as being great places to live. Secondly, in relation to functions, ministers considered the five main functions that were recommended by the reference group and accepted them, but with one important caveat. And those functions are COVID-19 recovery, influencing policy and strategy, developing capacity, developing and promoting good practice, and driving and supporting intervention and investment. The reference group also suggested that those five key functions should be underpinned by a number of horizontal integration principles. And those include decarbonisation and tackling the climate emergency, sustainable development, integration of the high streets vision with the delivery of programmes across government and the relevant outcomes and the forthcoming programme for government. The important caveat that I mentioned, and members have already heard this in the previous session, ministers decided that given the urgency, the immediate work on COVID recovery relating to the high street should be taken forward by the existing COVID-19 task force. And you've just heard evidence on uh, the work of that particular group. And the thinking behind that is that it would leave the high streets task force free to concentrate on the longer term strategic work. The two task forces will, of course, continue to work closely together. On membership, uh, the reference group did not recommend any additions to the membership beyond the group itself. However, ministers considered it very important for the task force to have a broadly based membership, reflecting the breadth of that vision for town and city centres that I described. Hence, the final membership was broadened considerably from that of the reference group. Um, partly on foot of that, uh, given the breadth of the task and the size of the membership, in terms of the organisation of the work, four subgroups have been established, one for each of the key uh, key functions. And Mark will say a little bit more about that in due course in terms of how, how they're operating. And the task force is uh, chaired jointly by junior ministers, again, in order to pick up that important aspect of having access to ministers, ministers as part of its work. Within the reference group, we did look very carefully, as ministers suggested, uh, at the existing models in England, Scotland and Wales. And ministers had suggested that the bespoke uh, approach for Northern Ireland should have the Scottish model uh, as a template. The reference group looked very favourably on a number of elements of all three approaches, uh, each of which has something to commend them. For example, the English approach appears to be the most well-developed and certainly the best resourced by quite some, some margin. And it has a very clear focus on good practice and capacity building. The Scottish and Welsh models appear to have a greater focus on direct and local intervention. Uh, and as a consequence of their smaller scale, they may have easier access to government than the English task force has. The Welsh initiative of the three appears to have the best developed partnership arrangements between central and local government. So clearly there were elements in all three that commended themselves to the reference group. Arguably, the recommendations that the reference group put to ministers actually bear more a closer resemblance to the Welsh model than the Scottish model at the outset, albeit that we see the task force probably evolving to resemble more closely the Scottish model with elements of the English model over time. But that will be for the task force and ministers to determine. In relation to the supporting infrastructure, uh, DFC colleagues uh, supported the work of the, uh, the reference group 
and now formally provide the Secretariat to the task force and subgroups. So Mark is actually the SRO, the Senior Responsible Owner, now for uh, this piece of work. And I'm very grateful to Mark and his colleagues for uh, agreeing to take on that role. Now, that's an unusual arrangement, uh, and I have to say it's largely driven by practical considerations. DFC has much more expertise and broader stakeholder connections than TEO has in this particular area, and TEO simply does not have sufficient resource uh, to take the work on by itself. However, there's also an additional benefit to this, and this touches, I think, upon some of the points and questions that were raised in the previous session, and that this arrangement is part of a further development of finding ways of working across departmental boundaries and increasing the capacity of the NICS to uh, go beyond the walls of the silos and work collectively across departmental boundaries on issues that are a priority for the entire executive, as well as for individual ministers. And if I talk briefly through my other uh, hat, which is the PFG, members will appreciate that this will be extremely important going forward if we're to, to deliver successfully the outcomes in the forthcoming PFG, which simply uh, require working across departmental boundaries if we're to succeed. Chair, that's a, a, a brief recap of the development path for the High Streets Task Force. I'll now hand over to Mark just to describe the current position and how he, he, thinks, he sees things going forward. Okay, thanks, Chris, and um, thanks to the committee members for um, the opportunity just to present to you um, about the, the High Street Task Force and maybe hopefully address any questions that um, that you might have. Um, so just before I, I do that, um, I'd quite like to echo that point that Chris has just made um, about the cross-departmental working. Um, and I think our immediate response to COVID-19 was a very good example of that. Um, and just because it's relevant to town and city centres, I'll, I'll maybe just mention that very briefly. Um, together with um, her colleagues in DERA and DFI, our minister launched the COVID-19 recovery revitalisation scheme. So that's three departments providing councils with £19.3 million of capital money to assist um, villages, towns and city centres to recover from the from the lockdown, um, and very welcome uh, it was too. Um, but as Chris said, the High Street Task Force is actually intending to concentrate on much longer term and more strategic work than that. Um, and as, as Chris said, that's because the problems that face our high streets really do predate the arrival of COVID-19. Um, so the way people shop, the way that our communities use their high streets um, continues to change. It, it also in turn then changes the nature of what makes a high street successful. High streets, um, towns and city centres have to evolve and adapt and the successful places are those that can adapt well and do that quickly. So the approach therefore, um, it's really about helping that process of change to happen. So it's not about resisting change and it's certainly not about harking back to the past. Um, I think from a policy perspective, we need to support interventions that um, that develop town centres as this idea of multifunctional social centres. So that means ensuring that town and city centres have people living in them and that their homes are supported by the range of services and communities uh, and amenities sorry, that, that communities need. So it's not just about um, having a concentration of of retail or in fact of any single land use. Um, 
There's no doubt, though, the pandemic um, has had a massive impact. Um, I think it also reinforces the need for a coordinated and strategic response, um, not just, as I mentioned, the immediate term, but uh, the longer term recovery priorities. And I think this, this uh, initiative, the High Street Task Force, it provides an opportunity to shift the perception of the high street away from the traditional economic model and towards the more complex one that Chris and I would, would both like to talk to you about. Um, so uh, just where we are, so the as, as Chris said, uh, he gave you some details of the, um, the reference group that led to the high street task force that met for the first time on the 23rd of February. Um, and that was chaired by the junior ministers. Um, and at the first meeting of that um, task force, um, yep, there were four subgroups set up, influencing policy and strategy, developing capacity, developing and promoting good practice, and uh, finally driving and supporting intervention and, and investment. Um, at that first meeting, members were invited to self-nominate to one of the four work stream groups and indicate if they were willing to accept the role of chair. So the membership of those subgroups has been confirmed and chairs have been appointed. Um, as Chris said, I've been assigned the role of um, SRO, Senior Responsible Owner for the, the project. Um, and in May, uh, I met with the four subgroup chairs, um, the chair of the Ministerial, Ministerial Advisory Group on Architecture and the Built Environment, or MAG for short, um, and they're providing expert input. Um, and my senior colleagues in this department who attend and contribute and um, support the subgroups um, as they get their, their work underway. So since that point, all of the four subgroups have, have been convened. Um, they've met at least once, um, and they're progressing work on what we're calling an issues paper for presentation at the next plenary meeting of the High Street Task Force. Um, and at that meeting, we would expect to be able to identify synergies between the issues identified by the subgroups, uh, and of course, address any potential duplication that uh, that might otherwise emerge. Uh, we're on course to have that plenary session of the main high street task force early next month. Um, I will say the, the lack of uh, a dedicated resource has been a bit of an issue for us in, in DFC, um, but I'm glad to say we've been allocated some additional funding for town and city centres, um, including um, some support to meet the, the costs of providing secretariat to the High Street Task Force. And um, I'm fairly hopeful that we'll have a dedicated staffing resource in place fairly soon. But until then, um, my colleagues in, in DFC are just going to continue to carry out that role alongside day-to-day duties just to make sure that, that uh, it keeps moving forward. Um, the, uh, I think following the next meeting of the, um, the plenary meeting of the High Street Task Force, the chairs um, have indicated that the issues identified will be the basis for comprehensive engagement with stakeholders. Um, on current plans, that looks like um, a short call for evidence and then uh, a wider sort of exercise of consultation and stakeholder engagement. Um, I have to say, we've already had a really good level of interest in the work of the, the task force from across a number of sectors. Um, so I'd expect that there won't be any shortage of views and comments coming forward. Um, our aim, and I'm very aware that this is a, a challenging one, is to draw all of this together and have a report with some recommendations for consideration by ministers completed early next year. 
uh, that's the the current plan. So, um, with that, um, members, I'm I'm sure, like Chris, I'm happy to take any questions. Thanks. Okay, thank you, uh, Chris, and thank you, Mark, for that. Um, we'll start the question. I'll I'll go off myself. Um, and as ever, uh, as Chris will know, I, I asked this uh, question uh, being a critical friend. And I'll emphasize the friend element before I ask my question. But the area of um, the High Street Recovery and the High Street um, Task Force, I've been suggesting and working with this for some time. Uh, and those that were members of BIPA will know that there was a series of work that's going back to 2016 uh, on that. But whenever we hear about plenary, about subgroups, stakeholders, synergies, a range of acronyms, TEO telling us that they don't have the expertise to deliver it, and DFC telling us that they've got no staffing or no resource about it, can the executive stand accused of not being serious about high street recovery? Because you know the, the businesses that are on the high street, certainly in South Down where I am and in other areas, are on their knees last year, the year before, uh, and they don't need platitudes, they need action, and they need to see delivery, and they need to see an executive that is on their side, and that is prepared to deliver the resources and to deliver the policies that will enable them to be able to thrive and to survive. And I don't think, from the report that we've just received from yourselves, it was fine in words, but I don't know that the detail was there to give me the confidence that the High Street Task Force is actually going to deliver. And this is a High Street Task Force that has one business owner on it. There's over 20 people on the task force, but one business owner in, in that definition. Uh, that alerted and, and, and to me quite early on and, and actually scared me a bit because this is supposed to be helping business owners on our high streets. And there's one. The rest uh, were a range of organisations which are representative, I accept, uh, but not necessarily going home and looking at a balance sheet that night that might worry them uh, and might spur them on. And also, it is exceptionally Belfast-centric. It is a, a range of headquarter bodies, most of whom are located in Belfast, uh, delivering a, a task force which has been set up for, uh, for cities, towns and villages. So what can you say to reassure me, having made all of those observations? Sure, perhaps I, I could start, uh, and then Mark will, will come to my rescue when I, when I flounder. Uh, on, on the first part, uh, I absolutely recognise the point you're making about delivery, and it's a point that every stakeholder and every member of the reference group and task force, I think, is, is made as well. I think my plea to you would be to, to think carefully about the timescale for um, arriving at a judgment uh, on, on that question. The English task force, if I recall correctly, took three attempts uh, to set up uh, before it reached a, a, any sort of um, sustainable um, uh, way of doing this going forward. The Scottish Task Force, I think, took a year uh, to, to, to get going. In terms of the way you phrased the question, I don't think it would be right for anyone to say that the executive isn't taking this seriously. I think the fair charge is that we're not yet good enough at being flexible and responding to priorities. The point was made, I think, in the earlier session, like particularly by Mr Dowd, about the executive having to make difficult decisions around prioritisation. Uh, and that is absolutely the case going forward. When the executive does do that, uh, and it has done in this case, it's decided that the High Streets Task Force is a priority. Then as a civil service, what I think we have to get better at doing 
is redirecting and reprioritizing our resources. So Mark and I have both been, been candid today in describing the difficulties that, that we face as senior managers in terms of the resource uh, available to us. That's not good enough, and that's not uh, that can't be the end uh, of, of the discussion. We recognize there's a challenge in that for the civil service. We need to get better at moving resources from A to B in response to priorities that uh, ministers identify when they make the difficult political choices uh, around what, what should have priority. Uh, and we're not yet as good at that as we ought to be. Uh, and that's certainly something I think that we need to improve. In terms of, of, of the membership, I, I think there's a couple of points that uh, that I would make. Firstly, um, outreach is going to be a very, very important of the, uh, aspect of this. So for all of the members of the task force and of the subgroups, Ministers have made it very clear to them that the expectation is that they will uh, reach out to those that, that, that they uh, can network with and engage with in their sectors, in their organisations and in their communities. So the involvement in the task force doesn't stop with the list of names uh, who are there as, as the formal members. I think the other points I would make around the, the, the perception that it's, that it's Belfast-centric Ministers in, in deciding on the membership decided not to go for a fully representative model. So those who were uh, chosen or invited to become members are there because of their skills and experience, but not to provide sort of comprehensive representation uh, of all sectors or, or all areas. If that had been the case, then we would have needed a very much larger membership than we actually have. And I know a number of members have actually expressed concern that, that the membership is, is already too large and potentially too unwieldy. But alongside that, ministers wanted a broader-based uh, membership than was uh, in, in the reference group. And whenever you're trying to do something like that, there's always, I think, a, a tension between practicality and comprehensiveness. Uh, and if I take one example just to, to illustrate that, so the Northern Ireland Chamber of Commerce and Trade is, is one of the representative bodies uh, that has been asked uh, to be a member of, of the task force. The alternative would have been to take a, a less Belfast-centric, a more locally-based approach. But there are 19 uh, local uh, chambers of commerce and trade, so that would have meant uh, immediately increasing the membership by, by 18. Likewise, uh, in terms of local government input, if we hadn't asked for that to be provided by Nilga and Solis, then we would have had to include uh, all of the, of the local councils in that. So you would very quickly get to a, a very large and I think potentially very uh, unwieldy membership. But again, recognising, I think, that issue around the, the, the perception of it being Belfast-centric, ministers have made it very clear that they expect all of those organisations to feed through not just the Belfast-centric view, but the views of all of their members uh, and all of the communities and all of the towns and, 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 and cities in Northern Ireland. Because I think at the core of this work, it's recognised that the solutions that are eventually delivered and put onto the ground uh, will need to be locally focused uh, and, and bespoke for each of our communities. The same pattern will not fit uh, in, in Belfast uh, or Banbridge or Ballyclare. Each will need its own solution uh, to be put in place. Okay, Chris. Um, uh, I wonder, could I add a little bit to that, Chairman? Uh, yes, go on ahead. Just, uh, I, I wouldn't add too much to what um, to Chris's response about membership and the, the Belfast-centric nature of it, but I, I would say about the immediate um, nature of the response, and that's why I mentioned the, the COVID revitalization scheme, which was um, which was taken forward across three departments, um, and it started this time last year. So it was a fairly 
swift response to the immediate needs of uh, of businesses in town and, and city centres. Um, and as I say, it was welcomed by most of the the, the, the business owners that we engaged with. Um, around that um, that sort of general point about do we just talk or do we act? Well, going on in the um, constantly is the regeneration activity of of my teams in uh, in DFC. Um, that's that's been going on for quite a while. Predates the um, the task force in um, England, Scotland, and Wales. Actually, um, so I just want to provide some reassurance that this isn't a, a matter of waiting until we've got a task force report before we intervene in town and city centres. Far from it. Appreciate the the candour there, especially from Chris about the skills gap that there might be, and and I know that we will continue because this is an area of interest to our committee uh, that we will come back to you and we'll explore that and we'll we'll continue to to, to monitor that. But again, just to reiterate that those businesses out there pre-COVID were getting very close uh, to the edge. COVID has probably helped them, and, and for some businesses, may uh, the funding that may have come through as an emergency in that front may have been helpful. But when that ends, they will be back into the scenario again of being perilously close to having to close, and, and that can rip the heart out of our, our high streets. So this work of this uh, task force is critical, uh, but its impact on the ground has to be felt very, very quickly. Members. We'll move on to taking the questions. I will just say that we it's not really of, of huge significance, but we're not quoted from the um, Economy uh, Committee, so we can't take any decisions, but we weren't planned to take any decisions anyway, but it's just to alert people to that. And given that we're at 10 past four, if members really could just follow what I've done there of asking one question, getting the answer, making a comment, and then we move on. Because if we move to two and three questions from each member, we're going to be here to six or seven o'clock tonight. So I'll pass the chair of the Economy Committee. And Mark for the, the briefing um, and uh, Colin uh, covered some of, of what I was going to raise. In terms of, as you've outlined, ministers ha have emphasised that the organisations that are, are representing their members are expected to um, effectively represent the breadth of the, their membership. Uh, how will you, uh, in your coordinating role and, and oversight role, assure yourselves that the needs of the towns and villages across the north are being um, expressed as much as the bigger towns and cities. And then the, the second question I have is around the immediacy of the, you mentioned the COVID revitalisation scheme. The Department for the Economy is currently rolling out the High Street Stimulus Voucher Scheme. Um, is there any cross-coordination with the work of DFE in respect of the, of the task force? Yeah, perhaps I, I, I could start with, with that. Um, a very valid point made. Um, one of the things that ministers emphasised, I think, fairly on and developing uh, early on, developing the terms of reference for for uh, the task force, was just to ensure that we got the coverage absolutely right. Some of the terminology can be actually quite difficult, and this in some ways can can uh, get in the way. I've said a number of times I don't actually like the phrase high street being being used in this because that tends to um, give the impression that we're focusing on cities or, or larger towns. So ministers have made it very clear it's all cities, towns, villages, it's, it's all our high streets. And also that, as I said earlier, I think will be uh, very differing types of solutions required uh, in, in, in each of those settings. So in terms of the core of your question, the, the, the oversight of that, I think Mark, as, as SRO, and I certainly alongside him, will be looking to each of the chairs of the subgroups to demonstrate 
just how it is that they're building the co-design and co-delivery into that. We will need evidence that's, that what is coming forward and things like issues papers and the recommendations is actually broadly based and evidence-based and that, that that evidence is coming from the range of high streets uh, uh, across all of our communities. Um, absolutely. Um... And I think the, the the sort of process of engagement that um, forms part of the um, the sort of project plan, if I could grandly call it that, um, should allow that sort of view to be tested across the various stakeholders too. So if uh, um, if if something is perhaps Belfast centric, um, there'll be plenty of opportunity for that to be pointed out. Um, if, if it isn't spotted by um, by ourselves, I think the second part of the, of your question there, Kiva, was around the DFE. Um, DFE have are members of the um, of the High Street Task Force, and just on that um, stimulus scheme, they've asked to present to the next plenary session as well. So um, I think it is important that we take a broad view of everything that's going on across government that would have an impact on um, on town and city centres. And I'm reassured to hear that. And I suppose I would just say in relation to the work of the subgroup, I think it would be important to emphasise that outreach and the opportunity to feed into those from other organisations or, or individuals. Question, answer and comment. If we can stick to that, we'll be doing well. Um, Keith, we'll pass to yourself. In the okay, thank you. Thank and thanks, Chris and Mark. And just before I ask my question, Gemma Dolan didn't get asked any question in the previous session. So, Gemma, if you don't mind raising your hand, We'll see if you raise your hand if you want to answer a question for this one. My question relates to, to comp, you refer to comprehensive engagement. Does that mean actually coming out of, and this is no disrespect to Belfast, but coming out of Belfast, a bit like Collins Point, and engaging on the ground in areas to get specific issues? And obviously, then you've got to report back in early next year. Obviously, the rates issue has been a big relief for businesses the past two years. So, for reporting back at the early next year, a lot of businesses will be thinking, we can pay rates again. The pressure, you know, there's going to be serious pressure on. So mainly, are you coming out to talk to people on the ground uh, and be innovative in doing that? Because everything can't be controlled over Zoom or Starleaf. Short answer to that, I think, is, is yes. So I think Zoom, Zoom or Starleaf will have a, a role to play in it. Um, but you're absolutely right that that can't be the totality of, of what we do. That local engagement is, is very important. Um, there was quite a lot of it in the early days, the early engagement with stakeholders and the early work of, of the reference group. Um, stakeholders were coming forward to us very proactively because they have lots of ideas and, and, and initiatives and thoughts about what would, would, would work uh, locally. And that's a process that needs to be on, ongoing. It does, doesn't actually finish at, uh, at any stage of, of this. We absolutely need to do that. One of the things I think probably all departments have found over the last year or so is that um, whilst we, we, we always need face-to-face -face contact with stakeholders, I think we probably all concluded there's actually an awful lot more that we can do on Zoom than we would have thought we could have done if you'd asked us, say, a year ago. This was certainly our experience in the consultation on, on the programme for government. So I think going forward, um, it will absolutely be a case of ongoing out outreach and using every channel of communication that, that's open to us, be that Zoom or, or Starleaf or, or the good old-fashioned uh, getting around a table in, in a room with people uh, and listening to, to, to what they have to say. But it's very important that all stakeholders feel that that is a real process of co-design and co-delivery and not some sort of lip service consultation. 
uh, or, or box ticking exercise. Now that will require uh, a lot of intensive effort and a lot of resource from us going forward. But we recognize that that is essential and that's something that we're absolutely prepared to do. Thank you, and that's, that's good to hear that. And you're more than welcome in Mid Ulster, and I'd be more than glad to get you in there and have a conversation with local business. Thank you for that. If we could move next to Martina Anderson, if we could bring Martina up into the spotlight for a question, please. Okay, uh, thank you, Chair, and uh, thank you, Chris. Uh, you'll not be surprised that I will once again echo my concern in relation to the competition. I'm hearing what you're saying, Chris, that um, you, the Minister's decided not to select people to be fully representative. Uh, but you did so based on skills. Reminds me uh, as someone, as a female representative of for many years and years gone by hearing why women were not at the table because there would be outreach done and it was based on skills. And I think coming from a city that has got a city centre initiative and an expertise in this city, I really do feel there is a missed opportunity. I have said that before, and I've said it before the task force uh, membership was agreed, and I have to say I'm disappointed. But can I ask you in relation to the funding issue, Chris, has the TEO commissioned research or com compiled any sort of compiled any costing um, just to estimate how much funding may be needed um, or is it too early to do that? And ca could you also uh, tell me, in the event of funding, will the task force be able to apply or bid to the monitoring rounds? Uh, or how is it envisaged that the task force would be able to get access to funding? Thanks, Martina. Uh, can I just touch on maybe on the, on the membership uh, point first, and then, then I'll come back on, on, on funding. And I absolutely recognise the point that, that you've made. You, you have made it cogently and very consistently uh, at a number of meetings. Um, there's not a great deal that I can add to, to previous answers in terms of decisions that the ministers have made, but can absolutely assure you, you know, we, we recognise that there is very good practice uh, in, in Derry, and we absolutely want to engage with Jim Roddy and colleagues there. Mark and I have regular dealings with, with Jim on, on a, a range of issues. Uh, and you know, not only Mid Ulster, Derry, uh, everywhere that has good practice, ideas, views on this, uh, that absolutely has to be part of, of the engagement process that, that we will build up. In terms of funding, I think you, you, you anticipated the, the, the answer to your, your question. It, it is, uh, I think, too soon. I, I think the task force needs a bit more time and space uh, to develop its ideas on what the interventions are that, that need to be to be played out on, on, on the ground. Uh, and, and we've got to give them the opportunity to do that. It's also to a degree, I think, a, a question that doesn't have an empirical right answer. Because there isn't uh, an agreed recipe for what a sustainable high street would look like in the future, and because I think we've recognised already that the recipe will be different in, in every community, mm -hmm. I don't think anybody would be in a position to say today this is what it will cost in order to deliver the outcomes that we're looking for from the High Streets Task Force. Now, as the work progresses, I think absolutely what we will want is the task force to come up with a series of recommendations on interventions or policy initiatives or, or, or changes. And it may or may not be a case of being able to cost those in terms of what they would require for 100% delivery. I suspect it's more likely to be a case of being able to demonstrate what the return would be on the investment if the executive is, is able and is prepared 
to make the decision to invest in particular programs, then we will need to be able to demonstrate what the, the, the return would be on that. And I think, again, go, going back to a, a question or point that, that Kiva raised earlier, how is it that we will assess those benefits? Well, it really does need to be on, on the basis of outcomes as set out in the program for government in all their dimensions. Uh, so it's economic and social. So if, for example, um, uh, childcare and affordable childcare uh, does play a part uh, in the recovery strategy, then we need to be able to assess all of the benefits of that in and of itself uh, as a measure that uh, is, is valuable to children and young people as a piece of social policy with a focus on equality and also as a piece of economic policy in terms of what it would do uh, for regenerating high streets or regenerating the labour market. Um, I, I appreciate the, the recognition given to Jim Roddy and the City Centre Initiative uh, in Derry, and I'm sure he and the workers there will do so as well. And I'm glad to hear that yourself and Mark are engaging with Jim. And I think you're right with regards to how do you assess um, the recommendations that would be coming forward. It has to be that there's demonstration that they're making a difference uh, to people's lives. And I think once we get to the point where the um, assessment has been made as to what may be required, then if, if research is commissioned by the TEO or you have some indication of the costing, then that should be brought to the committee as well. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Martina. I'll pass to Kiva for another member from committee. Yep, Sinead. Sinead. Thank you, Chair. Um, I suppose there's three key issues for the High Street Task Force. First of all, is how do you reduce um, the rates burden? Secondly, how do we drive residential accommodation right into the centre of our uh, urban and retail centres? And thirdly, um, you know, how do we drive a new transport and connectivity strategies and systems within, within our high streets as well and within our city centres? And I think it's in order for, for us to look at this, it's essential that we also look at our fiscal policy and that we align the fiscal policy with our high street policy. And at the moment, um, they certainly aren't aligned if we want to rejuvenate uh, and uh, regenerate our high streets. We have to make sure that our fiscal policy faces in and favours those businesses that are investing in our city centres rather than penalise them for doing so. So uh, I suppose essentially my question is, what engagement is the High Street Task Force uh, making with our new fiscal commission in order to drive radical changes within our uh, revenue gathering system? So, for example, that the emphasis is not on a property tax uh, and bricks and mortar, but it is definitely looking at how we tax online businesses as well that are competing and competing very effectively at this moment in time. In fact, COVID has driven it up. So we've gone from uh, 2007 from 3% online to now that it's over 28%. That's not going to go down. That's going to continue to rise unless we face in and make new fiscal policies uh, that favours the city centre. So uh, I know it's a, a bit of a long-winded question, but that's fundamentally how we actually uh, drive regeneration within the city centres and retail centres. Thanks, Sinead. Just on, on the core part of the, the question, uh, subject to confirmation from Mark, I don't think the High Streets Task Force has yet engaged uh, with uh, the Fiscal Commission, but I agree with you that would be a very important uh, line of engagement uh, to, to pursue. Earlier in your question, I think you emphasised three very important uh, dimensions of this in terms of rates, housing and, and transport. 
um, I would be very surprised, in fact, shocked if the High Streets Task Force didn't come up with some sort of a recommendation around rates reform. Now, of course, it'd be for ministers and the executive in due course to, to decide on that. But we already know from the early engagement with, with stakeholders that that will be uh, an important issue. And I think that um, topic illustrates um, the way in which we've tried to organise this work to, to take it forward. So there will be very short-term issues around rates relief in the context of COVID recovery, uh, which I suspect will, will fall to, to Jenny and Karen and colleagues there in, in the COVID-19 task force. But then there will also be strategic issues around rates reform and rates policy, and as you say, fiscal policy more generally, uh, and about shaping those so that they generate the sort of development and transformation of high streets that, that, that we're looking to see. And clearly, consideration of housing and transport policy, equally important in that regard, which is probably a neat point for me to hand over to Mark, uh, as he's responsible for housing also. Thanks, Chris. Um, I suppose, uh, like a lot of our answers, I'm going to say it's it's a little bit early days to, to try and um, conclude what exactly the High Street Task Force is going to come up with, because it is a, a collection of, of members who have work to do here um, before they they make their recommendations um, but me uh, for, for for my part and my team um, we're certainly keen that um, that they really look at the issues of um, transport and connectivity um, particularly with a view to having sustainable places um, the we know that there's concern around uh, the, the cost of car parking for example in town and city centers but actually the real issue is that um, using cars to get into um, and around town and city centres is not a sustainable thing to do. It doesn't really work in the in the longer term and you see that in more successful towns and cities across the world actually. Um, and what you also see, and you're quite right, is uh, that you have people living there. So um, we've we've talked about notions of living over the shop. Um, we've we've talked talked about repurposing um, buildings for um, for more residential use, um, and we've we've certainly talked about the um, the availability of land in town and city centres. Um, and there's no question in my mind that we could do an awful lot more to have um, city centre, um, town centre, and high street living just as a natural and um, integral part of those places. Um, and I know at the risk of being Belfast centric. Um, in, in Belfast, the um, their local development plan talks about seeing the uh, the the resident population of the city grow, and the main opportunity for that is in the city centre. Um, so we've got here um, a need and an opportunity that are sort of aligned. Um, we've said to members of the the task force already that um, we are probably going to be unable to hold back the tide of the, the change in the retail environment. But what we could do to help you is provide um, people on your doorstep. So there will be customers living in the um, in the towns and, and cities if we have our way. Um, so it won't be so much a question of how do we attract people and give them somewhere to park their cars. They'll be there because that's where they live. Um, so I think um, you're probably preaching to the converted about those issues of um, how do we have a, a proper rates burden um, across the um, uh, across the business sector that doesn't deter investment in town and city centres, um, driving residential use, absolutely, and much more 
focus on sustainable means of transport. So I think probably, and like Chris, I'd be amazed if those things didn't feature very strongly in the recommendations of the task force. Much for your answers, and I, I would just say, well, I would be absolutely astounded if it didn't, uh, it didn't uh, rise to the top because um, rates burdens um, have been a big issue for all businesses, particularly small independents in our city centres have been crucified with it for years, uh, pre-COVID. Uh, so it does need a radical rethink, and we must put uh, the burden in favour of our city centres instead of against it. So um, thank you for that. I think next we have Gemma Dolan, who is, if we could bring Gemma up into the spotlight, please, for her question. Yeah, go on ahead, thanks, go on ahead there, Gemma. Thank you, and thanks to Chris and Mark as well. I'm going to go back to the membership issue, but I think the rural issue has been, I think that point's been well made, so you'll be glad to know I'll not make that again. Um, but in terms of the membership, I think the trade union should be represented on the task force. Um, and at the very least, they should be um, one of the stakeholders that you, that's being engaged with. Um, have you got any thoughts on that, or has there been any thought given to trade union representatives being on the task force? Well, in, in fact, we do. Uh, we have both Nikkei 2 and Ulster, um, with a, a particular retail focus there. Uh, Nikkei 2, one of the earliest and, and very positive engagements that we had on this whole issue was with, uh, with Nikkei 2, and ministers agreed very, very important to have that perspective uh, involved in the work. That's brilliant. That's great to hear. Um, thank you. That's my questions. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. I'm going to go to Kiva to see if we have another member from the Economy Committee. Mike. Yes, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm going to agree as a comment with Sinead. I think the two key interventions are uh, a radical reform of rates and encouraging more people to live uh, in the centre of our cities, towns and villages. I think, I think my question, and it is not a criticism directed at either of you personally, uh, but it's the fact that you know, you're taking another six months before you report. And when I heard that, my, first, my instinctive thought was, well, that's not a private sector timeline. So the question, I suppose, is what needs to be done for the civil service, for people like yourselves, to be able to be more reactive, flexible, fleet of foot? Uh, because, for example, Arts Chamber want parklets uh, in, in Arts Town, you know, where you take on-street parking and you convert it into seating areas for cafes. Working with the Department of Infrastructure, they're being told, if you get it, we're talking about November. Well, they need it for the summer. We, we, we need to just say, good idea, under the COVID uh, environment, let's just do it. So what, what can be done, Chris, do you think, to, to give you the tools that you need to be fleet of foot? Thanks, Mike. I think two things. Um, firstly, we absolutely recognise the validity of, of that challenge. You know, if in our response to COVID we'd said, you know, we'll come back in a year's time and tell you what our initial thoughts are, uh, I don't think people have had we've had much much time for that. So we need to sort of take on board that COVID fleet of footness and start applying that to uh, other areas of policy where, where we need a more rapid response. So part of the solution to that, I think, was touched upon by, by Jenny and her earlier comments. Part of the thinking around reconfiguring TEO and splitting the roles and responsibilities is to recognise that if ministers decide to do something like a high streets task force, 
it doesn't really work if a civil service then says, well, we'll, we'll spend five or six months trying to identify the resource to do some work on that. You're absolutely right that somebody isn't how any business would work, or if it tried to work like that, it wouldn't, wouldn't survive. So in part of the reorganization, Jenny wants a more general purpose um, policy development team established within TEO, something to give us a bit of flexible capacity that when something arises as, as a priority for ministers, that we have some resource that we can apply to it quickly uh, and hit the ground running uh, in a way that we just couldn't uh, in, in the early months of this uh, un, un, until we got it going. The other point I think I would make is, uh, and Mark and I know this already, if we went along to High Street Task Force members and said, this is all long-term, it's all strategic, um, the only things that we're interested in are long-term recommendations on, on major policy changes, they would, as they already have, say to us, that's not good enough. There actually needs to be a range of short, medium and long-term interventions here. So, you know, Mark has set out a, a timescale for the sort of very large building blocks from this to come forward. But I wouldn't be at all surprised if the High Streets Task Force and, and the subgroups are also coming forward with a range of shorter and major term, medium, more medium term recommendations for, for interventions. Probably in some territory that will take us closer to the COVID Recovery Task Force, but we'll, we'll dovetail in with that. That's a very strong flavour of what's coming through in, in, in discussion. Uh, and I, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see that reflected uh, overtly in the work of the task force uh, when it next comes back to ministers. That's useful. Thank, thank you, Chris. I, th I think just in terms of how we interact with yourselves, we, we need to think about perhaps how we can further incentivise you to be fleet of foot, maybe even to, to take risks, because at the moment I'm sure all you think about is avoiding the PAC. Perish the thought, Chair. Uh, we go to Keith then for somebody from Finance. Melissa. Uh, okay. Valter uh, Rovenshaw and you, you're both very welcome here today. Um, as one who always has believed that you know the centre of gravity moves as it does do even in terms of uh, economics as well, uh, and I've seen that in relation to different town centres and so on, that's where the economic centre of gravity tends to move. Uh, and I know that you have already said that the title, will say, is enforced in itself, but yet and all, uh, I know too, Chris, that you also said this about uh, sustainability uh, of the high street and so on. So in relation to that, you know, um, uh, and in terms of, we'll say, the schemes to date uh, in relation to rates relief and so on, do you think that, one, that they could be broadened, uh, and two, that the, uh, we'll say the amount of support uh, could be increased? Uh, and in that respect, would that be of help uh, to those businesses currently, we'll say, located in the high streets? Because it's probably one of the greatest criticisms that I hear all the time, steady in particular, are from the business community that say their rates are far too high, you know? Again, I think a very fair, fair point. Um, uh, the answer there, I think that there's a bit in the middle that we haven't identified yet. So the COVID task force will recommend whatever it recommends in terms of uh, immediate rate relief or, or support. The High Streets Task Force, I think, as we've already said, we would all be amazed if it didn't come up with some long-term strategic recommendations around uh, the reform of or, or transformation of, of the rate system. The bit in the middle that's perhaps missing at the moment is the bridge between those two things. And again, this was touched upon by, by Jenny earlier on. It's important that the recovery strategy then dovetails into the programme for government and that we actually follow all of this through and think it through. I think, how is it that we get from 
uh, rates relief or rates support at the moment through to uh, the more fundamental restructuring, if that's what's decided, of, of the rate system. Uh, and we mustn't leave that, that gap in the middle. Your point about uh, sort of centre of gravity, I think, is, is extremely well made. One of the things that we heard fairly frequently in hearing from the English, Scots and, and Welsh task forces, particularly Scotland, I think, in the shape of, of Phil Prentice, is the concept of, of anchor tenants in, in town and city centres. Uh, you know, Mark said earlier, I think quite quite rightly, you know, we, we can't hold back the tide, unfortunately, in terms of what's happening about uh, around retail. But equally, we can't offer a council of despair. We have to have the economic centre of gravity in town and city centres that are, are around which we will build all of the other developments that, that Mark referred to. But that will look different from, from, from town to town, from, from village to village, and it will look different from perhaps what it's looked like in the past. If we talked about anchor tenants five to ten years ago, you probably would have been thinking solely or mainly of a large retail development. Looking forward, it might be retail, but probably a different type of retail, as Marcus said. But it might be a, a, a public service hub uh, of, of some description, um, located in a town or city, city centre, uh, where perhaps we wouldn't have thought of, of placing something like there, that there in the past. And then it's a matter of thinking around Around that centre of gravity, how do we ensure that all of the other um, policies and initiatives and sectors join up in the way that we've, we've described? How does housing interact with that? Uh, how does transport, particularly public transport, incentivize the right sort of development and investment that, that we're looking for? So it's a very different concept, I think, of, of centre of gravity than we've had in the past, but the concept itself remains just as valid as it has been. Uh, and just in addition to that, then, like the actual fiscal commission, commission uh, it's looking at the feasibility of uh, the devolution of further uh, taxation powers and so on. Uh, and in particular, say in relation to VAT, do you think is there a role there that maybe in some way that that could be supportive of businesses located within our towns and villages? It's the second question, so I think it would be unfair to start it now, and we're getting to, coming towards the end of our third hour. So, if you don't mind, uh, we'll just go go on to the next question. Then, so, Kiva, okay. do we have somebody else from Economy? Okay, can we bring John O'Dowd for a, a question and then an answer and then a comment, please? Okay, uh, thank you. And apologies, I had to drop out of the meeting for a while, so apologies if this point has been covered. Obviously, the High Street Task Force does what it says on the tin, and it's largely, therefore, urban-based. Is there support within that work for villages? And is there an equivalent work stream going on somewhere to support rural businesses in, in the revival after the COVID pandemic? Thank you. Thanks, John. Um, short answer is yes, um, absolutely. Ministers were very clear. It's it's all high streets, so it's cities, towns, uh, villages of, of, of all sizes. Uh, I don't think there's a specific work stream yet. That's not to say the task force couldn't uh, adopt that in the future, but certainly we want all four of the subgroups to come forward with recommendations and proposals for high streets and for communities of all sizes, including those that are, you know, very clearly urban and, and those that are more more rural nature. So our villages and towns absolutely are part of this. Okay, that's that's great. Thank you, Chair. And we go to Keith then to call uh, Pat Catney then, please, Pat. Yes, Chair. Thank you. Um, I'm one of those guys that lived above the shop premises when I was in business. And uh, uh, 
the point that I'm trying to make here to you is we need to think very strong. I know that um, one of my colleagues had said earlier you need to be fleet of foot. Uh, the Department of Finance operates a reform of property management programmes. Uh, will the High Street Task Force be working with the Department of Finance to rationalise the civil service state and make these prime sites available to hard-pressed businesses in the High Street? Just not the businesses, but young entrepreneurs, those that are the risk-takers, those that have got a great scheme but find it so difficult in order to have the money in order to try and get in there. There are opportunities out there to open up the streets, open up little pop-up shops, chefs, cooks, anything that can come in. They're sitting there with empty premises, anything which drives footfall and brings it in. Are you thinking along those terms of using that and taking the gamble on that? Thank you. Yes, Pat, thank you. Absolutely. Um, and, and there's a number of challenges in that. You know, Jenny made the point earlier, I think, in response to a question. Um, you know, we need to think about um, the return of the Civil Service Task Force to the office uh, in all its dimensions. So it's not just, if we, if we looked at that purely in terms of the efficient and the effective conduct of our own business uh, and the views of our own staff, then we might come to a particular conclusion. But we have to look more broadly than that. We, we have to recognise that uh, civil service functions uh, might be some of those anchor tenants that we referred to earlier. So I think we do need to think very carefully about what the civil service estate will look like in the future in terms of a safe and productive uh, return to a blended form of working post-COVID, but also what that means for a broader range of economic and social policies, including the High Streets Task Force. And you're right, there's supply and demand sides to that. So if we do decide to reconfigure the civil service state in any particular way, we need to think about where we are locating the functions that we're moving, but also how we can ensure that any changes, any infrastructure that's freed up as a result of that, is used in a productive way that, that stimulates and generates the economy exactly the way you've described. Just on the last point, Chair, thank you. I would have not been able to operate in Belfast if the civil servants weren't based there. I was very lucky to have them all around, and it's a key economic driver because nothing brings people in like footfall. Okay, uh, Kiva, have we somebody else from the Economy Committee? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, so the, the race base has been mentioned a number of times, and the finance ministers today announced a revaluation for 2023. So, just in relation to that, is that something that will be coordinated with the work of the task force? And then, just Mark, you mentioned um, the the models, I suppose, of town and city living um, elsewhere across maybe Europe or even Asia. Um, are you looking at those types of models? I know you have specifically mentioned the, the equivalents in England, Scotland and Wales, but are you looking beyond that as well? Thanks, Kiva. Um, for me to come in on that, um, Chris, the, um, yeah, we're aware that the revaluation um, has, been, has been announced today. Um, I suppose what we would anticipate is that um, there might be a more sort of fundamental um, take on that by the, the members of the High Street Task Force. I mean, the, the revaluation is important, um, but it, it's um, it's it's kind of reallocating the same burden on on businesses. Um, it's it's really just based on um, it's a, an attempt to to um, to judge what the, the the change in value has been of various premises over the um, 
over the last couple of years, and, and no doubt COVID will have had an impact on that. But I think what members have told us already is, um, and I think some of the, the committee members have, have referred to it this afternoon, um, that actually, rather than just talk about what the theoretical rental value of a business is, you should be thinking about what its contribution to the vitality of the town or city centre is. Um, and that would be a, a fairer way to, um, to tax businesses and it would have some benefits to um, to, to the wider community. Um, uh, in terms of the, the different sorts of um, um, sort of typologies of, of housing, um, it is it is important that we look more um, further afield than um, than just England, Scotland, and Wales. Um, there's there's good examples um, across various cities. Um, you know, the Scandinavian cities um, are always um, examples of uh, of what can be done in terms of sustainability. And the attraction there is their climate isn't all that vastly different from from ours. Um, so yeah, the answer to that is yes, and we do have some academic input on the High Street Task Force as well, uh, and they'll be bringing their expertise um, to uh, to bear on the, on the discussions. And I did mention just in the opening statement about the Ministerial Advisory Group, uh, they, they would have a lot of expertise and a lot of sort of precedents in other towns and, and cities or sorry, other other countries that they'd, uh, they'd be able to bring and show the benefits of. And so I suppose the answer to that is, is yes, Gila, thanks. Okay, and then I think we're down to our final question. We'd be glad to hear from uh, Matthew Till. Thank you, Chair. Save the something to last. Um, one of the key economic drivers in all high streets, one of the things you just mentioned, vitality, one of the things that brings vitality to high streets are pubs. Unique on this island, we have a statutory limit since 1902 on the creation of pubs. Uh, will the High Street Task Force be looking at that, uh, to some people, fairly surreal restriction uh, that exists and uh, not just creates a limit on uh, the potential of high streets, but uh, guarantees, in effect, that one sector can only ever get smaller? Thanks. I, I think the, the short answer, again, is I'd be very surprised if the task force didn't touch, touch on this, but that's for the task force to decide in terms of what it, what it brings forward. But again, we, we know that, the, that those sorts of issues are uh, very much on, under its consideration at present. What I would say is, you know, no, nothing is ruled out in, in this. Um, ministers haven't been prescriptive in terms of saying things are off limits in, in terms of, of potential solution. So there's no reason why the task force can't consider that issue and come up with recommendations uh, if it thinks that that is part of the solution. Okay. Then can I, uh, as my final comment, say you may or may not be aware you've been very busy. Uh, I, pa an amendment was pa I passed an amendment, or the, the, the Assembly passed an amendment that I tabled uh, to the Licensing Act, which is currently going through and will be up for further consideration stage next week, providing for uh, an independent review of the licensing system, including the surrender principle. Can I strongly encourage the High Street Task Force to engage with that review? Uh, the Department will have a little bit longer if other amendments pass to get this ready. In my view, it might have a little too long, than it, that more, longer than it needs. Uh, I would strongly urge the High Street Task Force to get involved with that and uh, not to put too fine a point on it, not simply talk about it, but to uh, proactively try and shape uh, the outcome of that review because uh, I think it's very hard to see how anyone could look at our current licensing system, which has been extant in Ireland since 1902, 
and believe that it is conducive to uh, thriving high streets, either in cities, towns, or villages. So that would be my very strong ask and recommendation uh, to the High Street Task Force. Well, there, there we go. We get uh, an item for your to-do list, Chris, there at the very end, so it will be fresh in your uh, memory. Um, can I take an opportunity to thank yourself and Mark for coming along today um, and taking slightly longer than they are uh, for answering questions, but in, in answering those questions, it's very much appreciated, and we will certainly check in and be back with you again very soon on, on this matter. But thank you very much indeed. And to members sure. present... Can I uh, ask if there's any other business which allows us to say that the date and time and place for people's next meetings, the Executive Office Committee and Finance Committee is at 2 o'clock next Wednesday. The economy is next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Members, thank you very much indeed, and thank you for your participation today. That's the meeting concluded. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is